I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit? This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective stay out! named Eddie Valiant Ooga Booga Murder Marvin Acme A rabbit cacked him last night Sex I'd do anything for my husband, Mr. Valiant Anything And violence Tunes Gets them every time. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be? Got a thing for rabbits, huh? The whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. It's a comedy a little different. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. But tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket or you're just happy to see me? Touchstone Pictures and Steven Spielberg present a Robert Zemeckis film. We tunes may act idiotic, but we're not stupid. Who framed Roger Rabbit? This episode concludes our early 2022 commission season. It wasn't actually a commission. What happened was we had a sudden emergency fundraiser on the Discord because one of our longtime listeners got suddenly slapped with serious education bills they couldn't pay on their own. A lot of folks chipped in and one person in particular chipped in a lot. They remained anonymous while doing so, and I'm not going to reveal who they were, but I did contact them privately and say, hey, we want to do something nice for you as just a thank you for that. That's really changed a life. I feel wonderful when we can do this as a community. Plus, you are assisting with somebody's education. It's kind of on brand for a school of movies. Pick a show, any show. We'll just do it. And they were like, oh, I'm rubbish at this. And eventually... And you can thank them for this. They finally pushed the button on our long-promised Who Frame Roger Rabbit show. So, anonymous person, it turns out you're actually really pretty good at picking them. I hope you enjoy. And thank you. This one has been an incredibly long time coming. And there was only one chap that we absolutely had to have on to talk about it. Our companion throughout the long-running Disney animated classic series, Mr. Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. Welcome back, Dan. Hello again. It is. I mean, this is this is an event, folks. Like <laughs> we've been kind of dallying with the idea, but it's it's actually more intimidating than things like the Lion King, uh, and well, it's it's on a par with stuff like that because there's just so much. This is a dense production. Yeah. Now, Now, the film varies wildly from the 1981 source novel by Gary K. Wolfe, who censored Roger Rabbit. In that pulpy fiction, which does feature Jessica and Baby Herman, it is in fact Roger, a newspaper cartoon strip bunny character who gets cacked, not Marvin Acme. Somehow, toons create temporary doppelgangers of themselves to be stunt actors in their strips to take the, the difficult pratfalls, I suppose. And Eddie winds up working with effectively Roger's shadow after he's dead. It's, uh, it's ghoulish. While Valiant investigates the 
key suspects ask him to act. This bit's from Wikipedia because I was like, I tried to explain it. I'm like, you know what? This just does it the best. (laughs) While Valiant investigates, the key suspects ask him to be on the lookout for a certain kettle in exchange for a reward. I'm like, kettle? I don't remember that in the movie. He eventually finds the kettle, which was in Roger's possession, and gives it to someone called Dominic, only to find it is actually a magic lamp with a genie in it. I'll say that again without the music, because it's an absolutely pivotal part of the book. A genie who then kills Dominic. The genie explains its origin and that over thousands of years it has become embittered, now only granting wishes with a catch and admits to being, this is Wishmaster, and admits to being the one who shot Roger. He further explains that the words to command him happen to be a part of a children's song that Roger habitually sings, and as such, Roger wished for success in Jessica without actually realizing he had done so. So he only got Jessica because of a wish. Yikes. When Roger accidentally activated the lantern a third time, but this time witnessed the apparition, the genie killed him. Valiant holds the genie hostage over a saltwater fish tank, saltwater being its weakness, which I'm assuming the, the genie revealed. The genie is then forced to grant a wish to make, made by Valiant for proof of Roger's innocence, which is provided in the form of a suicide letter from Dominic, confessing to both Roger and the rabbit's former boss, Rocco de Grisi's murders, along with his own suicide. See, I feel like... I wish Roger back from the dead. I mean, unless it was Peter Lorre, the genie, who's like, it's not a pretty picture. I don't like doing it. You know, I mean, he's, he's a tune. He should be... Uh, anyway, but clearly, if they're making their own stunt doubles, they can't take any kind of damage. Not trusting the genie to keep its word of letting him go and also knowing that no one would believe him about a, the genie, Valiant drops the genie's lamp into the fish tank and the salt water dissolves the genie. With Roger's murderer disposed of, Valiant concludes that the DeGreasy murder was the original Roger Rabbit himself. Roger's motive was that Rocco DeGreasy had stolen Jessica from him and that he generated his doppelganger in order to be an alibi. Well, that doesn't work if you're a toon and everybody knows you can make a double of yourself. So the whole plot's fallen apart. He intended to plant the murder weapon at Valiant's office, making him the full guy, but was shot by the genie when he accidentally summoned it. The doppelganger confirms the truth and confesses that he had planned it for days. However, for clearing his name and befriending him despite what he did and what he tried to do afterwards, uh, this uh, shadow of Roger praises Valiant for his morals, calling him a real stand-up guy. Roger gives Valiant... I know I'm doing Sylvester, not Roger here. (laughs) Roger gives Valiant a final heartfelt goodbye before disintegrating. Yikes. It sounds like it would have been a phenomenal disappointment for fans of the film. Thus, in 1991, ten years after his first book, Wolf wrote another Roger Rabbit book, who plugged Roger Rabbit. But... In the form of a memo from Valiant, the book says that Roger Rabbit and his screwball buddies play fast and loose with historical accuracy, which means that the stories do not have much continuity between each other. There is no connection between the novel and the first one, with the exception of Jessica mentioning having a dream containing the events of the first novel. (laughs) So it was all a dream, folks, like season four of Community. Or it could have been a gas leak. In fact, the second book attempts to connect itself more with the film than to the first book. I mean, understandably, if the writer's like, oh, oh, you did it way better than me. Let me just backpedal a little and kind of like retake those ideas. Yeah, fine. More power to him. He he laid out the template which Hollywood actually did something really, really good with. This is a fine example of an adaptation far exceeding the uh, source material. 
Now, Bob Zemeckis had made a film called The Sure Thing, all about a college boy trying to get laid. His next film was rejected by the studios who wanted successful filth like Porky's for being too tame, and it was rejected by Disney for being too filthy. It was a little indie sci-fi uh, you may have heard of called uh, Back to the Future, which proved to be quite a big hit in 1985. Zemeckis then spent three years preparing and shooting Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was a big effects-based blockbuster and a kid-friendly animated feature and a hard-boiled film noir, a ridiculously complex juggling act which by all rights shouldn't have paid off, especially as the head of animation was Richard Williams, a man who had been working on his Arabian Nights animated film trying to make something better than Disney on and off since the mid-1960s. <laughs> Listen to our jaw-dropping show on The Thief and the Cobbler, which is on our separate podcast feed, The School of Movies Archive. Uh, that comprises everything we made before 2018. It is quite a, it's quite a journey to go through the making of that film, and Richard Williams is kind of a, a, a mad genius who is powered by procrastination and perfectionism. Kind of like Dan Harmon, actually. Um, Put simply, the odds of Richard Williams being able to deliver on time were astronomically against. The odds of making a film noir that kids could like and that parents would approve of, as well as delighting an audience of all ages with slapstick cartoon humour and drawing critical appraisal, along with technical adulation and awards, put this in the realm of a miraculous impossibility. It shouldn't happen, and it doesn't happen. And true to form, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a once-in-many-lifetimes. You say once-in-a-lifetime. No, no, no. This spans multiple lifetimes of onceness. It is a confluence of talent, luck, trial and error, and risky but clever decisions. Nothing like this had happened before or has happened since. I'd say the most recent two equivalents would not be Space Jam at all, but the Lego movie and Enter the Spider-Verse, both deliberately taking animation in directions that it hasn't been in before in big successful films, and both becoming instant classics. But they were delivered, those two more modern movies, to a world that was ready for them, to the point where they were successful, but especially with a certain crowd that could receive their nuanced qualities with open arms. Roger Rabbit has been more of a late bloomer. If you listen to what, what Siskel and Ebert said about it, was absolutely praising its technical achievements, but in ways that, as kids, we would have taken for granted. Who frame Roger Rabbit? It's one of those home runs that Hollywood hits every once in a while. It's a movie like 2001 or Close Encounters or especially like E.T. That's a technical breakthrough and a lot of fun both at the same time. This movie is great entertainment from one end to the other, but it's also one of those films where you're always asking yourself, how did they do that? Now notice there how realistically the animation is combined with the real world. It looks like Roger Rabbit is really there in the human universe. And look at the way here that real water and a cartoon rabbit interact in this scene as the bad guys come looking for Roger and Hoskins hides him. The cartoon characters are named Toons in this movie and one of the things that makes them different from humans is that their lives are governed by the cliches of animated cartoons. That explains how and why Roger can get out of those handcuffs. Does this help? Yeah, thanks. You mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. Yeah. Come on, Eddie, raise your sense of humor. He always is funny or only on days when he's wanted for murder. 
And it's amazing there how they really seem to exist in the same physical universe. In previous movies, you might have a little cartoon character dancing on somebody's shoulder, but they never really seem to really be there. There have been a lot of previous movies where animation was combined with live action. For example, Song of the South with Br'er Fox interacting with Uncle Remus or Mary Poppins. But it's never been done anywhere near this well before. This is a wonderful movie, one of the year's best films. Oh, I think so, absolutely mm -hmm. true. And again, the dominant reaction that I had, mouth agape, how did they do that? Now, one of the tricks that I learned that was very interesting, an improvement in t cartoon technology is, and even an improvement over the classic Disney cartoons like Snow White, which would animate every other frame so that it would, instead of 24 frames a second, uh, like you see a person on movies, they did it 12 frames to save money. And two frames are similar. Every single frame here is animated. They wanted the animation to look as bright and real. All 24 frames are animated, just like Bob Hoskins is running at 24 frames. And I think that's why the film is brighter, more exciting than most cartoon things that we've ever seen, including the opening four or five minute cartoon, pure cartoon sequence that opens the movie that is so dazzling and yes, so funny oh, that's... that I tell you, I'm going back to that movie to see that sequence the opening, again. The opening sequence yes. of five minutes had me laughing louder I, than any cartoon I've ever seen. It was hysterical. And then you're quite right when you go through this film. They cast shadows. Yes. They seem to, the floorboards bend under their weight. When they uh, are in the dishwater, the water is moving. How they did it? is obviously they just worked and worked and worked. It makes the movie seem more realistic. Here's the big question I have. Who is the film going to be more entertaining for, adults or kids? I know who I think. I think more for adults. You, I agree, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But as such, like I said, this is, this is a late bloomer. Back in the day, grown-up film intelligentsia were not going to devote too many column inches to its brilliance. I never read a sight and sound piece on why it pushed through so many boundaries so successfully. What it needed was the kids who watched it first time around to grow up and then revisit it after a few decades, realizing quite the extent of what we were gifted in 1988. It has taken people who weren't even born back then to discover it and sing its praises in articulated fashion. It needed a while longer in the cultural kiln to fully proof. And I've been thinking over the past few years and days of how we can talk about it. And if we attempt to cover every single little detail in this thing, myself, Sharon and Dan will be here for eight hours and we'll still miss bits. That means getting comments like, that was a good episode. I can't believe you didn't talk about my favorite part, Lena Hyena. So I decided it was best to look deeper rather than simply listing things that are good. Let's focus on elements that we wouldn't have thought of as children. This is the, the new perspective that watching this as an adult gets. I feel like uh, the Tom Hanks film, Big, uh, also has a, like a, an unexpected new reaction when you watch it as an adult, uh, although mm. I'd, I'd say Roger Rabbit is more of a technical achievement. Um, so let's focus on the technical excellence and the storytelling acumen and some of the meaning imbued, whether intentionally or not. Dan, uh, what do you know about the production of this film beyond what I've already said there? It is just absolutely stunning and shocking as a piece of work that manages to come together and be like it's hard to imagine working on this at any level this is such an interesting animation and visual effects challenge interesting. of a film can you <laughs> can you imagine trying to direct this like tr trying to be on a set explaining to a crew and a set full of actors mm what all the invisible things are that are about to happen around you that you have to react to. I'm George Lucas making the Star Wars prequels right now. <laughs> this, this tennis ball on the stick's gonna be a big lizard creature. 
it's amazing. Like, and they're using many of the same sort of like similar techniques for the actors. Like, here's a here's a ball and a stick that to show your eye line. Mm-hmm. Track this and try to try to react to this. Not just like a real person, but a real person reacting to a cartoon who is not themselves a cartoon, but does still kind of match their energy a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's that, there are parallels with that, and I, I, I joke, but the Phantom Menace, the thing people kept uh, ragging on with for Jar Jar Binks was not just that he was irritating the whole way through and racist, but uh, that no one else seemed to really react to him properly. Everyone was kind of baffled by his presence. And the eyelines thing that you just mentioned there definitely doesn't match up repeatedly throughout Jar Jar's screen time. Continue, sorry. Yeah, that is, I think, what is so thoroughly impressive about this film. It, it's not that complex visual effects films today are easy because computers are involved. We're just able to do a lot more things and fix a lot more stuff in post effectively. For this sort of film to make this work, this had to be so meticulously and completely planned in advance, like an animated film would be, Mm. except it's in live action. Every single element that is on screen that a animated character is going to move, every single place and cue that an actor that the actors on screen have to be able to remember and pay attention to and react to and the planning required and the coordination between a dozen different people mm. on set for every single shot is just daunting to think about and not just that but um, once these scenes had been filmed they had to edit together the whole movie and effectively give us a tune-free version to then send to England where Richard Williams and his team would add in the tunes. That way they wouldn't be giving them loads of raw footage so that they would end up wasting their time adding beautiful tunes into something that wasn't yet fully edited. Mm. It, uh, it, it effectively had to be done and then they add the special effects, which means that, that it had to be meticulously edited to the second by visionaries who could definitely had to be photographed by Dean Cundy, who directed, who uh, was the cinematographer on Halloween, Back to the Future, and Jurassic Park. So an absolute pro whose work that we love. And it was uh, edited by Arthur Schmidt, who, uh, from, the, from the sounds of it, basically working very closely with Zemeckis, uh, was able to frame each and time because it's comedy as well you have to time and imagine the comedy of the tunes and then let a bunch of British people do that comedy for you in just the right time if that makes sense it's effectively two animated movies they made a stop motion film with (laughs) real people and uh, robot yeah, they had little Machine robot rigs. Like if if a around. plate needed to sort of spin in the air, being held by a tune's hand, they had to have a machine that spun that plate around and then paint the tune over the machine. Yeah, so they did that animated movie first with all the meticulous attention to detail mm. that's necessary in a, a drawn animated movie, and then they had to draw an animated mm. movie over the top of it. It is stunning. Like every single department and person involved in this is having to do a weird version of their craft, a sort of a weird off version of their craft to make it work together. Zemeckis is having to envision he can't find anything on set like a like a lot of directors would like to be able to do to sort of play around and sort of figure some things out and Mm. figure out the lighting and the camera angles. No, he has to have everything exactly precisely tuned and planned every single piece of like set dressing that has to move or shift or get shaken around or thrown somewhere because of some tune in the shot bumped into it or knocked it somewhere. Mm. He has to play block where the actors are going to be exactly has to communicate all of this to all 
all of these invisible details through just storyboards and words to people on set so that it all can be communicated in time. Mm. The actors have to do their complicated thing of like effectively the Phantom Menace green screen acting sort of thing. Mm. But at a time when that was not super common and to a degree that definitely no actors were getting pushed to do at the time. Yeah, I think uh, just uh, when Eddie was in Toontown, that's about the closest you're going to get to the, the yeah. full green screen. Imagine you're falling off a giant Toon building. Yeah. I do think their method for working this, though, was absolutely ingenious. Having the big rubber dolls mm. of the Toon characters that they were going to be interacting mm. with, rather than, as we have repeatedly joked about when we talk about... Um, this kind of movie and the tennis ball budget mm. having just a, a fixed point for the actor to focus on that's the right size the right shape it allows Cundy uh, uh, to get the camera to the right place if Roger's going to be that tall we are constrained by the height of this rabbit if he's being held by his ears here yeah and it's giving the actors a point of reference for here's sort of like the weight mm. to play around with for this character you're going to be interacting with and Bob Hoskins is perfect in this he is amazing with his ability to mm-hmm. match the energy of a of a cartoon of an extremely loud cartoon character who is not animated yet and is not even there on set he's just hearing a voice from a guy in a weird rabbit suit off screen and he's reacting <laughs> i think to he that. could imagine roger from just looking at uh, uh fleischer just <laughs> crazying it up on wearing in a his suit. rabbit costume <laughs> I, I, I think bob hoskins was like why are you in a suit you're not really a bunny and he's like wow these are the clothes the costume that maketh the rabbit and i'm totally on board with that <laughs> because when you're in character being in costume really really helps mm. And it would probably subconsciously, even if not consciously, help for Hoskins as well, because Mm. this weird comedian bringing this Andy Serkis energy to the set Mm. is is like is himself ridiculous. And if your character has to be dealing with an exhaustingly ridiculous character, like other characters in every single shot. Yeah, you can kind of use a little bit, bit of that. And the most impressive feat to me is that Hoskins is not doing he is him not himself trying to act like an animated character he's not doing like a full jim carrey wild sort of thing oh god that'd be he's awful still, he's still playing like the straight man against these cartoons but he is moving and act, reacting in very exaggerated ways like if you if we could somehow pay whatever money was necessary to see the full no tune cut of this film which i would love to watch throughout like he his movement actually he follows principles of animation sometimes in certain things. Like when oh, he is nice. grabbing Roger and throwing him into a car, he doesn't just sort of like grab him and shove him, shove him into a car like you'd usually see. He like grabs him, picks him up, does a full anticipation pose, swinging him backward and then flinging him into a car. So he winds wow. up like someone doing a baseball throw. Yeah, like subtly, not too, ex- like not, again, he's not becoming a cartoon, mm. but he's doing just enough to make it to where when cartoon characters are animated against him, they the will still the feel same. like they're right. They're the, like, they will still feel kind of correct getting flung around in cartoon physics yeah. by him. It's amazing. That's what was missing from the Phantom from Menace memory. because in uh, the moment. like uh, Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor are not doing that with Jar Jar Binks. Well, that's the thing when it, when it comes to Jar Jar Binks, ultimately like at least a third of what people gripe about is nothing to do with Ahmed Best. It's the people around him, and it was not his fault at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think this this might be down to direction alone. Like, because we rag, we can rag on Lucas a lot for, like, directing approach, especially with actors. And I think, actually, that is that might be the key difference here. Oh, like, and writing I, as well. Like, the, the script on well. this is really tight. 
they're also true makes a huge difference mm. i think so like there's a lot that like zemeckis it has a reputation now for just sort of being the sort of like that sort of tech fetish director mm. who just loves sort of like really just trying to push boundaries in that way. And th that frustrates me more often than not. But in this case, like a visual e effects heavy film like this goes infinitely smoother when the director understands deeply the technology involved and how to shoot exactly in a way that is going to give the effects artist, which is in this case animators, everything that they need to work with. And he's pretty decent directing actors as well. So if he knows exactly what's going to be happening, he can communicate to the actors, the character is going to do this. Here is how react in this sort of way. Give us this sort of reaction here. Here's the wild thing he's going to be doing. It's not just a case of what I assume the Lucas type thing was where like, here's a character. He's big. He'll talk to you in this voice. Say your words. <laughs> louder is, faster stronger as well i'm so pleased that you referenced andy circus dan because i uh, watching the behind the scenes stuff mm. for this i was like peter jackson has to have seen this and gone yes this is how we do it yeah the the, the they did reference shots as you said with the big standy up uh, like sort of stuffed animals like they do with rocket raccoon now uh and so that we know how big this thing's going to be how the humans around them are going to react but we're not going to use that footage it's effectively uh rehearsal mm. um and then there's a scene where Fleischer is in there delivering his lines. And then there's a scene with no Fleischer so that everyone can basically react with this invisible Roger. And they've already done it twice. So they've kind of got it in their heads. That's exactly how a lot of Gollum stuff was done. Yeah. And even the animators are having to do something very, like, this is a stretch of a film for an animator to have to work on because you don't get to... A lot of your animation work has been done for you in advance, whether you like what you were given or not. The mm. timing is already set. The film is there. You are having to animate a character that looks right and looks correct while tracking their position in a space, which is very hard. Very, very hard. Mm. Uh, especially in a time before computers could help. This, All of this being in a time before computers could help makes it just amplifies the difficulty tenfold. But they're also having to animate to be sure to cover up to just like draw on top of any of those little robot armatures or whatever that were mm. in the scene moving things on set there the animated performance has to feel like a correct animated character existing in the space moving like an animated character does while still having the movement and the timing constrained enough to be sure that it is drawn over anything in the shot that needs to not be visible mm -hmm. it is a really complicated technical challenge even before you get to the artistry part and I, I remember re, uh, hearing about this interview uh, Chuck Jones uh, gave where he he actually criticized Zemeckis for not giving Richard Williams more opportunities or room for like creative input on this uh, on this film. And it, I've, I've actually heard some similar frustrations from other animators who've worked on Zemeckis projects where like Zemeckis just wants something very specific, usually something that looks li like in the case of the more live action or the more animated but kind of live action stuff. He just wants realistic mocap looking stuff, not don't don't over animate it anyway. And, and some animators get frustrated with that on this film, though, adding having the animator ha have more creative input in there is one more cook in a kitchen cooking one of the most technically complex films ever made. Mm. <laughs> so like, I kind of understand what well, one, I think Williams was a bit more involved in it than Jones may have realized from the kind of from the outset. But yeah. at, once you've shot stuff, like once you're to the point of shooting, there's not room for, but there's not much room for creative interpretation anymore. You've already got the shot that the, that the animated character needs to be made to look like they always existed 
within. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, You mentioned uh, Jim Carrey. Uh, but did you mention Jim Carrey? Did anyone say Jim Carrey? At one point, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Jim Carrey a while back, and that's had percolating in my head uh, a 1995 version of Roger Rabbit. If they hadn't made this, if, if Disney had shit-canned it, and um, they had made it with Jim Carrey and the earliest 1995 CG in a modern era uh, crime thriller with, I don't know... You're describing the mask. With no, 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 uh, but but he'd be the rabbit. Uh, um, I don't know Matthew Broderick as the uh, detective. You got something like uh, a film that feels very much like the live-action Inspector Gadget that went out opposite uh, uh, the Iron Giant, an absolute cinematic abomination. And I am getting chills thinking of how bad they could have made this. And similarly, as much as Chuck Jones is a fantastic, legendary animator, and they very specifically went into this project, wanted to get the animation finesse of Disney, specifically earlier Ink and Paint Disney pre-Xerox process, so before 101 Dalmatians, that, that beautiful painterly style, but with the snappy characters of Warner Brothers and their Looney Tunes, but with the dynamism of Tex Avery style uh, cartoons. So, because he, he just, he really had this edge on being able to make thing, make slapstick incredibly watchable. I am struggling to imagine this version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit being any better anywhere. There's a there's a couple of things I'd add from a modern perspective, but I can't imagine in 88 they would have done those things, they would have even thought to do those things. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine this film being made and working at almost any other time mm. in film history now that I think about it. even just from a right, like a IP and rights management perspective, mm. I don't know if this could have happened at a different time because like this was at a perfect window where feature animation was not really a hot ticket. Yeah, pre-90s pre renaissance. A, yeah, like Disney animation had been in a big slump ever since Walt's death. Warner animation wasn't really doing huge numbers anymore. Like like video games were on the scene. Like that just feature animation just wasn't where like money was at at that point it was this it was just the one time in history where you could go to a bunch of studios who owned rights to old animated characters and convince them to let you put bugs bunny and mickey mouse in the same shot yeah i mean that that was a it was an extremely rare scenario and uh they uh zemeckis spielberg himself managed to get everyone to sign off on it they still couldn't get everyone the producers were unable to acquire the rights to use popeye tom and jerry little lulu casper or the terry tunes we got a uh, the person who uh, was in charge of public relations for terry tunes going yeah someone told asked if we could be in who framed Roger rabbit with the looney tunes and all of the disney characters i told him to get knotted ha <laughs> and it's like oh what sharon's got a Okay, Terry, yeah, I was getting round to that show. <laughs> okay, there was a bit when we were talking about um, <clears throat> Richard Williams' lifelong project, The Thief and the Cobbler, uh, which took 30 years to make. And uh, he just, he wanted it to be perfect, so he kept going back to the drawing board. And he did... Like, you know, he'd be given large amounts of money. Many years would go by. And then they'd ask, how's it going? And he'd say, okay, um, we still don't have a main character or storyboards or a plot. But look at these backgrounds. Look at these flowers. Oh, and we've got a new name for the production as well. Yeah, this is the sixth. It's now called The Tribulations of Rollo. What's that? No, we don't know who Rollo is. We think we might create a character called Rollo. You know, it's a very complicated process. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. I don't like to, to do things by the book. You'll get your script when the movie's finished. But trust me, it is literally going to be the greatest film ever made. 
I'm going to need 700 million pounds. More pounds. Like I say, he was a perfectionist. He was so obsessed with getting his, I'm assuming, rotating crew of uh, animators to... By this point, it's the animators' children. Yeah, the animators, yeah. The, the legacy animators. <laughs> to, to work out how to do beautiful walking cycles. And it was all about attaining that brilliance and not so much about getting down to the nitty-gritty of making a movie. I'm going to play you a clip from that episode where Sharon just loses it. Production under Fred Calvert, 1992 to 1993. Sue Shakespeare of Creative Capers Entertainment, which, by the way, sounds like a very, very low-rent, straight-to-video cartoon VHS production company. It sounds like the people who made Rent-A-Ghost, frankly. Let's see who Creative Capers are. Director video, Sweetsville, Bionicle Mask of Light, Bionicle 2 Legends of Metri New, Bionicle 3 Web of Shadows, Smallsville Legend of Kara and the Chronicles of Krypton. Films, a CGI game sequence in the 1996 live-action 101 Dalmatians. The opening sequence of Mr. Magoo, the Leslie Nielsen film. And Fievel's American Tales, that's additional animation, it's the Hollywood Cartoon Company. So that sounds like a TV version of of uh, American Tale. They had previously offered to solve story problems with Richard Wood. Imagine that. Imagine like looking at this giant mess he's got and actually knowing how to put together a story and going, Rich, we'll do this and not for a large amount of money. We will fix the, the story issues with this. Can we help? No, God! We just want to help lend some structure no, to No, God, please, no! No! Oh, okay. No! Okay. No! Uh, they suggested to bring in Terry Gilliam. <laughs> and we've broken Sharon, folks. Oh my god! Oh, good grief. Right. <clears throat> Terry Gilliam, by the way, is How? a master craftsman in making weird films that people love and are going to attain cult status, but don't make any money. How bad? Does your track record have to be when they think Terry Gilliam, a man who has spent the vast majority of his life not, this life not making, making a Don Quixote movie, would do a better job? I reckon Terry Gilliam could come into the project right now and go, so, 32 years trying to make it, huh? Cracks fingers. I'm, Flipping amateur. I'm going to get 20 years on you for that one. <laughs> Right, I, I, may I humbly suggest that somebody said that sarcastically. Hey, maybe we could get Terry Gilliam on this one. <laughs> if you're bringing in Terry Gilliam, how desperate are you for this thing to get made on in something resembling on time? And Terry Gilliam was offered the chance to direct. Roger Rabbit, that is. Terry Gilliam's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. A Disney Touchstone Pictures movie. And originally, yeah, um, Zemeckis had asked to work on the Roger Rabbit project because Disney had already pretty much picked it up back, you know, pre-Back to the Future. So then they were like, mm, not sure. So Back to the Future was his proving ground. It was his uh, bound, effectively. Like, ah! I, I can make a big film. And actually, it was, no, it, it was his Matrix. If you imagine that the Wachowskis then made something that's just as good as the Matrix immediately afterwards. Michael Eisner wanted to shut this down repeatedly, and he was talked out of it by... Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey! <laughs> Which is weird, because when you hear about the preview screenings, they invited, I say they, it's probably Jeffrey, a bunch of 18-year-old young men, 
and their dates. Their words, not ours. We would have said young people of, of, uh, of various genders. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was specifically uh, guys who were there on dates. And they were like, what is this? Maroon cartoons? I'm out of this. Let's go to make out point. Baby. Well, specifically, this. <laughs> Let's was... go down to the soda fountain and play jacks. If I understand them correctly, the preview version of the film that they were showing them, and I don't mm. know if it was the whole thing or just a section of it, was what Dan was talking about the animation free yeah. version that just had the armatures. I mean, and the th- why would you show people that? Of course, you're going to get a bad reception. <laughs> you're asking everybody, not just like, people who are paid to work with you and imagine it for you, uh, to, to actually. Yeah, here, here's a bit of a film. Imagine it's good. <laughs> That's Disney's next that. step. They could just just show us re- rolls of white film and go. I don't know. You imagine. But it. I would imagine if you ask me, like knowing what I know about Katzenberg and Eisner, which of these two men got mm. cold feet and said this is not going to appeal to teenage boys, and Disney must appeal to teenage boys? Uh, I would have gone with Katzenberg every time, and every time I would have been wrong. It is kind of amazing how this. It's weird that this like. Katzenberg went in believing that this movie was going to save Disney animation. It will save Disney animation. I didn't even know it was a Disney film until way later. It was distributed by Buena Vista, which is their grown-up films like Splash. Yeah, yeah. That's like we want to release a film, but we don't want you to attach the name Disney to it because we, because we're still projecting that family image. Mm. But I think you can actually kind of make an argument for him kind of being right that it did in a weird way, though. Like because Disney. Disney feature animation was in such a bad way mm. at the time. They were still in the uh, stuck in the uh, cat, mouse, and dog phase of yeah. Uh, like Disney. the last theatrical release around the time that this would would have been greenlit would have been the Black Cauldron, like the low point. <laughs> and Katzenberg and Eisner, for all their so many faults, like they had come in to Disney wanting to bring feature animation back in, and they were establishing plans for that. And this, like this film, did kind of succeed in kicking off a nostalgia wave for for that golden age of animation that's, that had come before. And mm. so when Little Mermaid dropped the next year, people were pretty ready to see, like, a new animated thing be good. Yeah. Originally, Judge Doom was going to have been the hunter that killed Bambi's mum. <laughs> That's a little on the nose, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's it's. I think maybe they they rework that to no wait. Maybe it's make it more personal, and it's Eddie's brother. So uh, that that's that's a much uh, you know uh, more painful, less te- like that. That'd be hard to swallow for the kids. That that's a joke. You're making a joke out of one of the most tragic deaths in animation history. So I'm very glad they didn't do that. It also underpins uh, one of the important elements of the toon human mm. uh, crossover behaviour in that Doom himself gets fixated on this. The worst thing a toon can do is kill a human. Yeah, but the yeah the um, you're right insofar as it it put people in mind of the era when Disney were just about to hit their second wind because uh, they'd done those first five that uh, we covered all those years ago. At this point, they were in the middle of their wartime ones. You remember that that like hour long uh, treatise you read us on the uh, uh, fun and fancy free. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> and uh, they were just about to sort of gear up to do Cinderella three years after this film is set in 1950, and uh, so it and, and the fact that Milt Carl was one of the biggest influences on Richard Williams, 
it does give it that lineage. And you've got Don Hahn there as the future of, of Disney's success, heavily involved in the making of this. A lot of the top-notch Disney Renaissance-era animation talent that we would start seeing, like the names we would start seeing pop up during the Renaissance were kind of in, were involved in this as well, mm. like Adele Bear and Joe Ranth and James Baxter and oh, Bruce Joe Willis Rant. and Andreas Deja and Nick Ranieri. Like, a lot of those Renaissance guys were working on this. Oh, did Andreas Deja do one of the weasels? I wouldn't be surprised. He must. He's just like he's got he's got wickedness in the blood. But yeah, <laughs> watching all these these people on their light desks just making their flip books, I can understand why Disney would look at that now and go, "Well, this is inefficient." And, you know, it's not going to make us much money. Why should we... I, I keep going back to this thing. Why should we bother sponsoring this? What I'd refer to, as was Sharon, as a very expensive and time-consuming hobby that everyone else is allowed to witness. That's what <laughs> hand-drawn animation at this level is. But, um, but yeah, it just... It, it made me pine for the... Uh, I think we appreciate the level like practical filmmaking in a slightly different way to computer uh work because it feels like computer work is very much mouse clicking i mean that's so unfair on people who put their time and effort into beautiful drawings and we just saw turning red and it is wonderful to look at and a beautiful heartfelt story and i don't think that it being done the pixar way necessarily is wrong but i will always lament the fact that uh, since Winnie the Pooh onwards, Disney have gone, ah, we don't need this anymore. It's just our heritage. There yeah. is, I think, a a cautionary element about CG animation at its utterly top-notch peak. The level of tech that is required in order to make it puts it well beyond the reach of anybody who wants to work towards it without mm. going into some kind of professionally organised training program hmm. yeah, yeah that's very true and, and it's also a case where like it is work that is complicated enough that it becomes invisible like you, you unless you understand what all is involved unless you understand what all the different people involved work on how difficult it is even with modern like tools to do the kinds of visual effects or 3d animation work that we do today or even like the the complexity of the tools involved, its it just becomes invisible. Whereas when you see a painted animation cell, like there is a tangibility and a simple understandability of somebody drew that and drew a bunch of images of that that I can understand. You can it, see the steps in between, yeah. Yeah, it, like looking at the, this film feels so impressive because when you, even just seeing a few behind the scenes shots of people on a set looking at a robot smashing plates against its knot head, it's like you can instantly see, oh, that's how they did this thing. That's so clever. That's so like impressive and genius. Mm. Whereas looking at early stage wireframe animation in the first passes. Yeah. Or, or even just like looking at when you see a behind the scenes thing on just some visual effects shot in an Avengers movie, mm. there are so many hundreds of incredibly talented artists and like programmers involved in every single one of these films, like really smart people putting in bonkers hours who are extremely good at what they do. Mm. But it, in the end you get something that looks really good and impressive that most any of us certainly couldn't make by, our, by ourselves, mm. but we just, 
because we kind of can't understand it and because we've also sort of sort of associated the idea of computer effects and animation being sort of quote easier because you can kind of like there's a lot of things you can do with computer like computer animation and CG that you couldn't do without it like it's easy to start thinking of it as this simple easy thing that just kind of happens yeah you program it and then the computer does it all for you honestly I think anybody who is in the position of assessing animated movies I'm looking at you Film Academy um, should be made to sit down and watch Food Fight so that they can go right when it's done badly this is what it looks like or actually on that note there's a film we should probably do as a uh, uh, after school club Dan do you ever see Cool World cool I've seen clips of Cool World I've never seen the full film yeah it's uh, our old friend um, Ralph Bakshi who did the uh, Lord of the Rings cartoon and it's creep central but uh, it, it's it, it is a confusing mess in terms of script like the, the actual script doesn't make any sense and it's meandering all over the place and then you add animation to absolute gibberish and it becomes a, a, a cinematic wreck before your very eyes and clearly he got the go ahead on this because a few years earlier Roger Rabbit had made a large amount of money and then he said what if I did live action actors and sexy cartoon lady and all of these weird greeblies and they went yes dollar signs in their eyes yes Ralph Bakshi <laughs> you are the man and uh, you know, the thing I find most amusing about Cool World is that all the things you've described are true like this the, the animation looks mm -hmm. very strange and it's disturbing and the whole setup of everything is just poor and bad and then when you strip it down to its core premise it's nightmarish yeah <laughs> like I said if you start with a mess of a script it doesn't matter what you animate over the top of it nope Let's talk for a bit on the dynamics of film noir because I want to get to the nitty-gritty of why uh, why Roger Rabbit actually works as the, the core premise of Baby's first film noir, but also kind of a subversion. So this was a movement that was begun during the Great Depression and it saw its heyday in the 1940s and 50s and it was a response to the overly chipper and naive stories that Hollywood handled in the first few decades of the 20th century. Much like Gothic literature, which was usually a rebuttal against the uh, uh, power of the church, this stemmed from dark novels which often exposed the seedy underbelly of corrupt, well-to-do society. The villains were usually powerful men engaged in cutthroat business. The women were either good girls who have their innocence destroyed, or worn-out hags, or duplicitous femme fatales who shot men in the back. The hero was almost always a cynical man, frequently a private eye, being hired to do a small job, which leads to something much bigger and nastier the more they dig. Theft, murder, seduction, cover-ups and blackmail were constant plot points and there was often a fall guy who may or may not be the lead protagonist and a fall guy is a sap who gets taken advantage of by the wicked and the twisted and he is very important for most film noirs. The cinematography of these, this era stemmed from German expressionism with stark black and white, which is where the Sin City gets its aesthetic from. And they were almost always set in cities with a high crime rate and jaded population, Chicago, New York, but most of all, Los Angeles, which was developed from a patch of desert into a thriving center of industry in a matter of decades. And you can't do something that fast without a lot of people getting hurt in secret. And that is... That is the exposed rot 
for a lot of uh, film noir, people getting hurt in secret. People smoked and cheated and killed and betrayed one another, and the philosophical conclusions were usually that people suck. So in what familiar and transgressively subversive ways does Roger Rabbit relate itself to film noir, both in terms of following and subverting? I can tell you what the first film noir shot is. So it's a little bit of saxophone. Well, you need the saxophone. So you have the opening short where they're filming uh, Roger and Herman making their movie. Yes. And at the end of that, Eddie appears on one side of the screen. And grumbles. And from that moment, the film noir aesthetic is established Mm -hmm. because he literally moves into a bright, brightly lit... Uh, multicoloured cartoonish environment where we've already transitioned from the actual drawings to models that are made to look like the drawings to this guy standing in a shadowy curtained off area with his hat down over his, his eyes. His fedora hat. Yeah, and, a, and is he chewing a toothpick or something like that? Something like that. But it, And it just has that instant oh, this is a film noir feel yeah. about it. And also like his first response is, <clears throat> tunes, and he sort of grumbles, and we're sub- we are presented with a different way of taking the wackiness. like Almost like the wackiness we just experienced, it's a bit much, isn't it? And this guy agrees with us. Mm. So it's almost like getting Toon us on side Jack, straight away. What are you going to do? <laughs> he immediately grounds it, because it, like we start off with a wacky cartoon. We immediately sort of... Uh, transition into a little send up where it's like live action people mm. directing this cartoon and the it's still kind of like goofy and sort of a send up of like oh what if animations but they were directed by people and it was we filmed them like regular things mm. and then the instant yeah it's the camera pans over and we get Hoskins standing there going tunes and taking a swig from his flask just the genre changes on the spot yeah drinking during the daytime whilst on the job like the uh, Eddie one of Eddie's uh, problems is, well one of the symptoms of Eddie's inner turmoil is his constant drinking and it's something that Roger actually kind of needles him about. Mm. He looks like a sensitive and sober fellow. Like, he's noticed that, like, as Eddie's angry at him on the other side of the table at that point, there is a half-drunk bottle of whiskey right in front of him. He is killing himself slowly. And that's unusual for a kid's film. The first time he meets some kids, they all start handing around cigarettes, and we're like, whoa, okay, what's going on? (laughs) You literally could not make this movie anymore. Indeed. You've also got a little bit of the overlap into how Hollywood itself was perceived. Hmm. That it's, it's this bright spot, read Toontown, surrounded by a lot of industrialized mess of people getting... Hmm. Shot and buried in the desert. Yeah. And uh, Alan Silvestri's score, he, again, this juggling act he had to go through, he had to he had to somehow segue within seconds between... Like, just the sort of the, the cool lounge vibes of noir, a dangerous edge. Also incorporating that kind of... The Back to the Future 2 style, like, sci-fi heist. (laughs) Plus the wacky... Like, it shouldn't work. Thank you. 
that score should be a mess. Mm. And yet, Silvestri holds it together. And I checked, because I was like, I think he was busy at this point. He made Predator in 87, Roger Rabbit in 88, The Abyss and Back to the Future Part 2 in 89, and Back to the Future Part 3 and Predator 2 in 1990. He went through one of the busiest patches of his goddamn life. And he's still making music for The Avengers. And that stylistic whiplash between those projects you just listed off to. Yeah. <laughs> like ping-ponging back and forth. Wow. Back to the Future, Predator 2. <laughs> just... Yeah, um, it's and at the same time, uh, all of those scores, when you hear them, are totally perfect for their movie. He doesn't make you feel like, hang on, this abyss sounds a bit Back to the Future. Or he doesn't feel like, oh, this uh, Back to the Future sounds a bit predatory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as, as um, you mentioned earlier, that Bob Hoskins' performance is is really important. You know, we've talked about uh, Mark Hamill's performance opposite Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. He had one puppet to react to and to take totally seriously, and he does a phenomenal job there, selling the Force in in a way that that grounds it, exactly the same as, as, uh, as, as Eddie does here. But uh, Hoskins' performance, and bear in mind, he was not relatively well-known at this point. He'd been in things like Mona Lisa and The Long Good Friday, but those were British films and Irish films, and they were not well-known in America. And then he just sort of comes along, and Harrison Ford auditioned for this role, and they said they wanted someone who was more who felt like he was more of that era. And Harrison Ford had just been Indiana Jones twice. Was, when do you think I was born? <laughs> but that did draw my attention to the fact that there was actually a lot of film noir in... Indiana Jones. There is indeed. There's even the femme fatale with Elsa Schneider in 1989's um, Last Crusade. Mm. You've got that. You, you've got the good girl. You've got the bad girl. And with Marion, you've got the tired girl. Well, yes, that's very true. I do think, though, there is something in the fact that the 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 four cornerstones, if you like, of the the characters that this plot revolves around are all men in their late 40s, early 50s, maybe a bit older, mm. short, round, Stubby. balding. Yeah. You've got Acme, Maroon, Eddie and Teddy, who is deceased. And they contrast very specifically with Doom, who is tall, skinny, pale, obsessed with progress and moving forwards. Yeah. There's no sort of handsome young man in this. Like the, uh, it is like uh, all the sexiness is owned by the all ladies. All the women are taller and more distinctive and more striking mm. than the men they are surrounded by. One of the producers, I don't know who, maybe Michael Eisner, uh, what sent back notes after looking at a uh, scene of um, Bob Hoskins and said, "Does his back have to be that hairy?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, Michael, it's Bob Hoskins' back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, his, his performance is twofold because he has to be dramatic and actually go through the process of someone who is dealing with grief that he hasn't confronted for you know many years of feeling like less than half a man. And he also has to be incredibly physical, talk, shout at a thing that's not real, that's there, that's actually going to send him through an emotional and physical journey, and do all of these like physical stunts and pratfalls and get thrown all over the place, and eventually just kind of come back around as a result of that. It's, it's like Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Jackie Chan, and that kind of performance, but dialed up with even more drama than you might expect there. Well, also, he has to visually convey the elements of his backstory that other people talk about. Mm. So when Dolores tells part of the story of what happened to him, he has to 
match that in terms of how he carries himself and how he interacts with his surroundings, but he doesn't get to tell that story himself. Yeah. R.K. Maroon, as in Maroon Cartoons? Maroon Cartoons? <laughs> hey, so who's your client, Mr. Detective to the Stars? <laughs> Chilly Willy? A screwy squirrel? <laughs> what do you want to drink? I'll take a beer, though. So what happened, huh? Somebody kidnapped Dinky Doodle? Cut it out, Angelo. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know. You're working for little Bo Peep. She's lost the sheep, and you're gonna help her find him. <laughs> hey? <laughs> Get this straight, Lean Ball. I don't work for Jones. <laughs> so what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? Dropped the piano on his head. And she delivers it totally straight, and it's sad and funny at the same time, uh, which is kind of Roger Rabbit. Mm. And as soon as you know that, and you're loaded with with the uh, um, Valiant's issues, you then get to see his office and this layer of dust on Teddy's half of the desk, and the photographs which tell you their story up until, you know, and, and you see a completely different version of the man you've been looking at and you realise what a monster he's become and how much hurt he's sitting on. It's fantastic visual storytelling to establish this character so that we feel sorry for him and him not being able to be allowed on the tram and then hitching a ride on the back of it with the kids and getting pally with them without it being creepy is a fantastic save the cat moment so that kids go, okay, I kind of like this guy, even if he's about to be mean to the rabbit. And also making Roger just a bit too annoying makes you like, yeah, I'd want to throttle him too. Yeah. Also, Eddie's save the cat moment is strongly contrasted by the first time we meet Doom mm -hmm. because he gets a... Kill the shoe moment. Round the puppy moment. Um, but also that scene with the tram, you get this sequence of little snippets of things that show you without anybody having to say a word how broke Eddie is. He hasn't even got the pocket change for a tram token. He tries to pay for it with a $50 check that he obviously can't spend on a tram. What do I look like, a bank? He bums cigarettes off the kids, which means he can't afford to buy his own. And then he comes across the postie who tells him all he's got from his bills. His bills. And then when he talks to Dolores, it's like, you owe me all that money, Eddie. And, and he's like, it's, he's on the edge. Absolutely. At this point. Yeah. And you also get him being like in that moment. I love that moment with the kids on the tram because you, he's also just a total sweetheart right mm. on the back of that tram as well. Like you're, there's so many dimensions to his character at one time. I think that's why this film feels to me like it couldn't be made at any other time. It's not just because it is sort of like 80s trans transgressive and wild. It's also that this film now, even if someone tried to make the exact same thing, it would get kind of squeeze down to a more smoother like a, it would be a smoother drink to swallow it would like all of the sonic wild the swings springs to mind it would like all the wild swings in tone from like really sad to legit terrifying to mm. really funny and wacky and goofy and the ways that this film manages to balance all of those wild swings would just sort of get like squeezed down to a slimmer easier palatable uh sort of a singular tone yeah uh I feel like uh, Detective Pikachu is a really good version of a modern equivalent of this, but even that has a lot softer edges than Roger Rabbit. There are some things that would be hard to swallow for little kids, and that's kind of part of why it's stuck in our minds. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about the dark, dark stuff coming up later, but uh, uh, I'm, well, I'm going to talk about the interaction in a bit, 
as in like the the animation of the the characters and how they sell that they're existing in the same world and the same plane. But first, big question. How does Roger win us over? Because if he was just irritating, we'd be like, screw this rabbit. Why didn't someone cap him? Like in the mm. book. So so how does Roger make us actually kind of get us on side? One of the things that really impresses me about Roger is that he's... The situation that he finds himself dumped in is one where people have tried to take very clear advantage of his naivety and his love for Jessica to set him up as the aforementioned full guy for this plan. And... Rick, you can't do this to me. His reaction (laughs) to deliberately having all of his jealousy nerves jabbed at... Is to write her a love letter? Is to write her a love letter. (laughs) I love that scene. It's so adorable. And Eddie even reiterates, in a fit of jealous rage, you wrote her a love letter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That tells you everything... You, you really need to know about who Roger is and who he will never be. He believes the best in people. This is why um, the, uh, you know, the conclusion on film noir that people suck, Roger doesn't believe that. No. And actually that holds true in the entire movie. If you remember when he makes Angelo laugh by singing Merry Go Round Broke Down and smashing plates on his head, uh, Eddie's perspective on that is, you know, they will chop you in the moment they have the chance. Everyone around here keeps getting laid off. Everyone's desperate. There's a lot less money and the world is changing. You're an idiot. And, and Angelo doesn't shop the rabbit in. He, in fact, makes fun of Judge Doom because Roger's right. So the thesis of this movie is people are inherently decent and if you make them laugh they'll probably get a you'll get a positive reaction out of them. Yeah, but also that is uh, extended in the whole uh, Eddie's character having been affected by the things that have happened to him because he used to believe that. He and his brother are portrayed when they're together as clowns, clowns as yeah. people who go out of their way to make people laugh. From a very, loss. like they were born clowns Absolutely. to a clown family that yeah. toured with P.T. Barnum and the Ringling Circus. Precisely. And the loss of Teddy has made Eddie unable to continue along that path. He's lost his joy. And that's what Roger is trying to bring back for him. There's another thing actually, and we, uh, we, I noticed this today and I had never seen this before. This is one of the things that, like, just really close observation will get you. When Eddie first hears he has to go to Toontown, he's not angry, he's afraid. And when he talks about uh, the um, the murder of his brother in, in Toontown, in the uh, theatre to uh, Roger, it's a sad story, and you can understand that he'd, he'd sort of harbour this, but... Hoskins' physicality suggests fear. So when he's fighting Judge Doom at the end and then the guy whips out a fucking buzzsaw, he's with us in being really afraid at that point. Like everything... uh, Because not only did he lose his brother, he broke his arm, which would suggest that he felt powerless at that point. Powerless to prevent people he cares about from being killed and powerless to do anything about bringing their killer to justice. Mm, Which you could also argue fits in neatly with the greater overarching theme of the story and similarly while roger is afraid he's able to meet his fears head on i'll get him but in not just an annoying scrappy do way like he has taken on board the information and he has processed it if you listen to him carefully uh he has moments of vulnerability and lucidity that make it clear he knows what's going on he knows he's being set up 
But ultimately, when you're a tune, you make people laugh. That's pretty much all you've got. You've got to find a way to muddle through. Indeed. And, and so his resilience allows us to at least care a bit more about Roger. Absolutely. And it, it kind of creates this sense of when everything around you is bigger than you and stronger than you and sharper than you mm. and will take what you've got just to do that, even though it doesn't need it, mm. If you can just carve out a little space for yourself to still be able to laugh, then at least you have that. Mm. Now, that theater scene actually is another, it comes a bit late in the film for it, but it's another thing that I think helps to kind of win you over to Roger being a character that you can, that is not just obnoxious. Mm -hmm. I think he's the only character who ever gives Eddie direct sympathy on screen for that past trauma that uh, mm. Eddie went through. Like, he's the only person who talks to him directly about it and says he and like says sorry and acts sad and kind of lives with him in that everybody else is it's entirely a thing that's kind of said in hushed whispers behind his back or it's a thing where like someone says a comment and that says no oh, sorry eddie like when they realize that they might have said something hurtful but like everyone just kind of tries to sort of like grimace and like all right getting on with life yeah we know it's it's sad but moving on having like roger actually talks to him about it yeah roger decides that they're friends way before eddie does and uh, there's a deleted scene. Did you watch this on... Uh, you, you seen this? You heard about this? <laughs> the pig head? <laughs> I didn't, know. Okay. So after... Uh, let's see. After Eddie argues with Roger, he goes... To, uh, it's, it's after he finds Roger in his apartment. He goes to find the... And he leaves Roger behind with Dolores uh, and gets the... <sighs> the... You mean you could have done that at any time? Not at any time, only when it was funny. We use that pretty much every week. And I'd say like once every two podcasts. It's an incredible line. It's an amazing line. But just the, I, I love any dynamic that puts two characters who don't like each other, or at least one of them doesn't like the other, in handcuffs. Because, it, you know, you're immediately, it's a, it's a bottle episode because they can't get away from each other. And they have to work together. I love that. It really brings out character. But Eddie goes away, starts snooping around the crime scene, gets picked up by the weasels and that giant gorilla, and Judge Doom, who's, like, looming over him. And a lot of this stuff is actually finished with animation added, like the final stuff, so it must have been a real pain to have to cut. Jessica's there, and Eddie directly accuses her of killing Marvin Acme, so that she can, I don't know, uh, get, uh, blame her husband on it and somehow profit from it. And Jessica is uh, aghast and angry at the accusation. But then they take him to Toontown, which makes Eddie very scared. And he, he gets thrown out of Toontown with a burlap sack on his head. And then when he takes it off, there's an animated pig head on his head. And his face is sticking out of the mouth. And the pig is alive. And I was like, this is a David Cronenberg body horror. Yeah, that's... I. I almost want to see it because I feel it'll be like it'll be way less scary than what I'm imagining. Yes, I think it's actually more scary it's, well, it <laughs> because is, it's I, I haven't even told you the end of it yet. No, no, no you carry. Um, okay, so he goes back to his uh, apartment, looks in the mirror, and then because he, we're seeing him from behind, his pig ears go Bleh! as he realizes that he's got a pig's head on his head. And he then goes into the shower and reaches for the turpentine and lathers it off himself. And so we see this pig's head, like face plop to the bottom of Eddie's shower like so much baked beans and then with its eyes still staring it washes down the drain I'm like that is the most bone chilling thing I have ever seen that's terrifying <laughs> this thing's alive and he just dipped it like that tune shoe 
And then he comes out, and uh, that's the moment when Jessica's, uh, you know, I've, you know, you've got to believe me, Mister Valiant, because at that point, when he came out uh, with his shirt off, he's just been to the shower. So if you look just before, then there's a shot of uh, Jessica in silhouette in behind Eddie's door that bridges the gap between the last two scenes to remove that deleted scene. It's very artfully done. I never felt like anything was missing, and I'm very glad they didn't put it back in. Yes. But yeah. if you have the discs with the special edition stuff on it, go look for that pig scene, folks. It'll haunt your dreams. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Roger's design is very much like a clown. I mean, I know this sounds obvious, but he's got these bright red pantaloon-style trousers, these dungarees. These big, long, white feet are clown shoes. He's got the bow tie and the sort of the, the flower-looking thing. And he's got those big blue eyes. And the blue eyes are really important. If he had little, tiny, little black beady eyes, we'd be like, I don't trust this guy. Looks shifty, walks like a crab. But... <laughs> He also has a grace to him. The, Dan, did you know the uh, thing that Richard Williams was using as reference points for his ears? Ooh, no, I didn't hear about this one. Ballet dancers. What they do with uh, their arms yeah. when, they're, when they're dancing, that was what Williams did with Roger's ears while he's moving around. So even though they look chaotic and bendy, they actually have a kind of a fluidity and almost a beauty about them. If you actually look at the way he's moving, his physical performance as he is a tune has a grace to it, even though it might seem madcap. Mm. Well, he's Ah. extremely fluid, which then reinforces what we've said about his character, that he has to go with the flow. And sometimes that flow works against him. Mm. There are multiple scenes in this where Roger is effectively caught out by having to do what it is in his basic nature to do. Shave and a haircut. Exactly. (laughs) But that is also paralleled with... There's a scene when... We were talking about the scene in the theatre a little bit later on. Eddie has, so far, tried his best to resist getting involved in this. Yeah. He, he's doing what he can to protect himself because he's been kind of forcibly dragged into it, but he doesn't want to, to dig in any deeper than he already has. There's been a murder, and that was not part of the deal. Exactly. And then... And he ain't getting paid enough for this. But he is also acutely aware that there is one set of information on his left and another set of information on his right, and there's something in the middle that's missing that doesn't connect the two together. And then at the end of the scene in the theatre, they catch the newsreel, mm. and it's it's he finds out that's that it. R.K. Maroon is selling his studio to Cloverleaf, the developers, mm. in this big real estate deal that everybody's fan like ecstatic about because so much money has changed hands. If you start watching a uh, a LA-based noir film, just ask yourself at the beginning, where are the real estate deals going and who's going to benefit from them? Is there a freeway around yet? If not, at some point someone's going to mention one. Mm. Just follow that and the money and you will find out (laughs) where the bad guys are. And whatever you think about this thing that's nasty, trust me, it's nastier than that. It's worse than you think, yeah. So, but but seeing this snippet in the newsreel helps, it, it, it just, this last puzzle piece just slots into place for Eddie and at that point, he can no longer resist it. Solving the mystery putting the puzzle together that's his his shave and a haircut wow (laughs) can't keep a private eye down
this one's definitely going to be in your wheelhouse as well, Dan. Um, the power of interaction. What are the the ways that they sell that these tunes are interacting with the people rather than just simply um, being us being told that they're there and having to suspend disbelief? What things did they do so that we just relax into it and buy it? They, I guess that's that's really the most impressive thing about this film in terms of craft and dedication. They, just the commitment to figuring out how to do impossibly hard things that everybody else who tries to make animation and live action hybrids tactically avoids mm. because it's just, because it's bonkers hard to do it. Like, uh, I think like uh, some Disney folk even sort of advised Zemeckis and Williams early on, like, here are our general recommendations for doing a live action and an animation combination hybrid thing uh, to make this remotely feasible. One, never move the camera. Two, never have the characters overlap if you can avoid it. Three, uh, and like, uh, just a whole long list. This and is like two, uh, no, uh, advice for if you need to have um, Dick Van Dyke dance with some waiter penguins who also cameo in this. Yeah, yeah, like that sort of thing. Like, the all the tactics here are the tactics to make this workable because computers don't exist yet Hmm. and if you're going to have the camera move you're going to not only have to animate the animated character you're going to have to animate them in perspective and you're going to have to make them their position in the scene and their like orientation rotation reflect that camera move and that is hard especially with hand-drawn 2d animation where you're not getting any perspective and volume for free like you do in 3d and the fact that Zemeckis and Williams walked out of that meeting and just sort of looked at each other and said, we're doing all those things, aren't we? And they, <laughs> they said, yes, <laughs> is bonkers. So they, the camera moves freely and they shape like, okay, so to go through the list of things they do, they have the set reacting to these characters constantly. Mm. They are having Roger bump into stuff like every desk full of objects, every pile of boxes every door, every light, he's just bumping into everything as he moves around. And you are watching all those things just get scattered and bonked and nudged and shoved around. The box he'll be standing on, the actual physical real-life box will be wobbling in place as he's standing on it and sort of trying to keep his balance. All of those things had to be planned out in advance and like engineered to uh, move on their own in time on set as, as they were being filmed, which is wild on its own. The actors did, I think Hoskins did some mime training to work on being able to act against an invisible character and an invisible object to be able to wrestle, uh, to be wrestled to the desk by Roger and make it look convincing. And he does a great job at it. And on top of that, the dedication to shading the characters, the animated characters, so they look like they are not just a part like in the physical space being lit by the same light sources as the actors, but in a noir space where that lighting and shadow is like crucial to the entire look. And that adds, especially in this time when their computers <laughs> can't really be done for much of anything that adds so, so much work. Like I, I heard an interview from a guy at ILM saying like, we had just come off of a star Wars thing. I think that was like 70, 80 effects shots. Oh, this I one, was, three, this one was 300. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like, this was 300 and of a very different kind of effects mm. back when, and back when ILM was a lot smaller. There are so many challenging things that if you were trying to do this on a decent budget and make sure that it would work and not like they're just, they're doing the hardest version of this movie 
on purpose and they did a great job of it mm. and the, the animators uh, are having to take that like that raw material and make it work and sometimes they're actually using taking an opportunity to make corrections through the animation so there's one thing that um there's this great video on uh roger rabbit uh on youtube uh, by uh, captain christian i think is the mm-hmm. name of the youtube channel I'm, creator is the, the one where you he they took he talks about bumping the light yes yes and, and bumping the light is kind of a uh and sort of a phrase in i don't know if it's a visual effects or animation industry it's just something it basically references a time when bob hoskins bumps his head against a light in the shot causing it to swing around and make the light in the scene change constantly and they went to the trouble of making assume that was an accident on set maybe not but like they went to the trouble of making the light and shadow on roger in that same shot change in time with the swinging light constantly which had to be just so so hard to do mm. but the animators also do this clever thing where like they uh the the uh captain christian points out in this one shot it looks like hoskins slightly misses his eye line he looks a little bit too high, high up and then to roger he... actually stretches up against the wall so that he can look directly in his eyes yeah so like the that's what Jar Jar didn't do yeah like that's a case where the animators like assuming that that was like not intended and that was an accident and Hoskins just very slightly missed his eye line. The animators in their performance had Roger sort of squeeze up against a wall on his tiptoes just mm. as a part of natural performance. It didn't feel forced. It just felt sort of organic, but it corrected the eye line and made it work. Like those are the sorts of things that they could try to do within the, the very tight constraints they were still having to work within. It's just an impressive feat by so many different people and that it all works out in the end is wild to me. What uh, something Bob Hoskins said about it is actually uh, something that even if you're acting, you can't physically make your body do. And that is, if you grab, if you hold your hand in front of your face and look at it, your eyes will focus on it. But if you take that hand away, your eyes will start to focus on the middle distance. You can't make them focus on something that's not there. <laughs> so they, uh, Bob Hoskins effectively had to simulate looking at a thing and make his eyes look at a thing that wasn't there. Which sounds, oh, you just imagine it wasn't there. It, he had to make his eyes focus like that, if that makes sense. On a thing that was moving, an invisible thing that was yeah. going to be moving with cartoony energy at different distances. So it's not just even focusing on one point. And he's having to act and react to that thing from like hearing weird lines, weird reverby lines from a guy off camera shouting a weird cartoon. Like in a rabbit the, hat. <laughs> the amount of concentration required for this, like for Hoskins's performance here mm. is really like stunning. And the fact that he pulls it off so well and that these characters feel like they belong on screen together at any point, much less throughout the entire film is just incredible. It's, it's almost, it's definitely why he got the job of super Mario and uh, Sharon's trying to focus without focusing. I'm, She's I'm training testing. herself. I'm moving from the top of my glasses to the top of Alex's head to the picture. It's so hard to do. It. it is it's hard. really difficult. Like you can't train your pupils to contract and, and, and uh, expand on cue. That's to do with light. And if you're looking at something, the light has changed because that something is in your light. The problem with Super Mario is it was all practical. There was no, there was no way for, like, the script was terrible and he had no things that weren't there to interact with. He had John Leguizamo to interact with consistently and Leguizamo was there all the time. And he had two directors who wanted to do like a Blade Runner film in a con- cement factory, which is not the same thing at all. The, the difference between the, the performance he uh, hands in there and the bewilderment that he hands in for the Super Mario Brothers film, it really does come down to the solid script that had been written beforehand on this one and, and, and the, the, the tight character that he inhabited. But the... 
surety that the director knew what he was doing and uh, to, to be handed the... Like, eventually he, he acted so well, he started seeing weasels where there were no weasels. Like in real life, he was, he was starting to go, ah, and see tunes. The weasels are closing in. Yes, I could smell the ugly brutes. But uh, yeah, the, it, it, that's, that's serious acting. And it's the sort of thing the Academy would never uh, reward you for. If you eat a bison liver, they'll think about it. But if you interact with a cartoon... That's not real acting. That's special effects stuff, and they don't want to know about it. But this is—I mean—the the performance is nothing short of astonishing. Because if you don't have that, if they put, say, I don't know, Michael Douglas in this movie instead, and he gave a bored performance, we wouldn't be talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit now, and it probably would never have been released. We'd be talking about disclosure. Would we? Michael Douglas interacting with animated uh, things. That was the best I could think of. Bob Hoskins. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Hoskins yeah, is seduced like, by Demi Moore. Just a direct comparison between, the, like, if you just watch this and Space Jam side by side, it's yeah. effect, like they're trying to do the same thing. And, like, comparing Hoskins and Jordan, like, that, it's incredibly unfair to Jordan. But Jordan is just sort of there doing his best acting in general. And there's a lot of wildness happening around him. But you very much feel, here's a guy, it trying to act interact against invisible things whereas hoskins actually feels like he is seeing it yeah and that is so like that takes an incredible actor to fake so uh, speaking of which there is actually a link and that's bill murray who was in space jam but was originally in the running considered for uh, eddie valiant and uh he he missed out on it and he would have been i think that would have been a wildly different uh, Eddie Valiant. Mm. And we've also seen Bill Murray go from being a sourpuss to being kind-hearted. And he does that really well. But I'm very glad Hoskins got to do it. I mean, oh, let's face it, it's probably the performance of his lifetime that he'll be remembered by for the, from the most people. Chevy Chase was also uh, a, a choice. Uh, uh, he was the second choice after Harrison Ford put forward by uh, Steven Spielberg. But they didn't have Harrison Ford money. Yeah. Uh, also considered Robin Williams I think he'd have been great man yeah, he'd, he'd have been, been great, great too Robert Redford eh, not, comedy's not really his thing Jack Nicholson he'd have you frightened really the children you really want to make it feel like Chinatown <laughs> make, make him your villain <laughs> Sylvester Stallone uh, huh. uh, Wallace Shawn that is inconceivable Ed Harris Ed Harris is way too serious he couldn't do that Charles Grodin who was actually pretty good acting against Miss Piggy in The Great Muppet Caper and a big dog in Beethoven. That's all that film is, by the way. A Family Gets a Dog. Phenomenon. $147 million on an $18 million budget. Those dog filmmakers got it sussed. But uh, yeah, no, Bob Hoskins was the, uh, uh, the one chosen in the end, and, and, and thank goodness. Um, Tim Curry was originally auditioned for the role of Judge Doom, but afterwards the producers found him... Too terrifying. That makes sense. Considering what we got, I wonder what Tim Curry did. <laughs> that had to be so. I like like looking at the list of names potentially cast for both of these two characters. It's a long Lee. list, and I do very much love that. Like Tim Curry auditioned, but was apparently too scary. And run, you're in the dip. You'll float too. John Cleese auditioned as well. Just wasn't scary enough. I love that. <laughs> you have to fit, hit that Lloyd. very thin window. I love that Christopher Lloyd is the perfect Animorphs midpoint between John Cleese and Tim Curry. 
More on him and how freaking terrifying he is in a minute. Uh, also, Peter O'Toole was uh, uh, considered. F. Murray Abraham, Roddy McDowell, hmm, Eddie Deason, and Sting. I'm glad they didn't go with Sting. He was a yeah. villain in Dune. It was not amazing. Uh, yeah, he, he com- compared it to the Klingon commander. This is um, Christopher Lloyd in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. He's just, he's horrible in that. It is honestly, he's got a really good range because... I do actually buy him as this horrible person. I buy him as Fester Adams, and I buy him as Doc Brown. But that doesn't mean that I'm not kind of heartbroken to see him perform as Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom. (laughs) Judge Doom. And and to feel, like, just deep resentment for the character, who is pure chaotic evil held rigidly in check by the pretense of lawful evil. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ow! Is this man removing evidence from the scene of a crime? Ah, no, Judge Doom. Uh, Valiant here was just picking it up for you. Weren't you, Eddie? Hand it over. Sure. His number one seller. I see working for a tune has rubbed off on you. I wasn't working for a tune. I was working for Arke Maroon. Yes, we talked to Mr. Maroon. He told us the rabbit became quite agitated when you showed him the pictures. The rabbit said one way or another, he and his wife are going to be happy. Is that true? Hey, pal, do I look like a stenographer? Shut your yap, Eddie. The man's in charge. That's all right, Lieutenant. From the smell of him, I'd say it was the booze talking. No matter, the rabbit won't get far. My men will find him. Weasels? Yes, I find they have a special gift for the work. All right, you mugs, fall out. Did you find the rabbit? Don't worry, Judge. We got the formants all over the city. We'll find them. You wouldn't have any idea where the rabbit might be, Mr. Valiant? Have you tried Walla Walla? Cocomanga? I hear Kokomo's very nice this time of the year. I'm surprised you're not more cooperative, Mr. Valiant. A human has been murdered by a tomb. Don't you appreciate the magnitude of that? The thing you were talking about regarding knocking things over in the environment, by the way, uh, made me think about why some CG TV shows don't work for me, and that is because their environments are too sterile and the mm-hmm. characters barely interact with them. Like, I'm thinking the, uh, the the original Clone Wars TV show, especially in its early seasons, characters would sort of walk around like marionettes, never feeling like they had any weight at all, and the, the scenery would not be in any way affected by them. It was just a, a diorama for them to get, but if everything was glued in place rather than yeah. feeling like, and this is why I feel like, like in some CG films that feature little kids, especially clumsy or exuberant little kids who might run and scramble fast over things, the animators will actually put in and then they ruck up the bed sheets or they knock this box over, which actually does sell the idea of it being a 3D world. But it's hard for us to get with a clumsy adult. Yeah. You know, if if an adult's like, whoa, you're like, pull yourself together, man. Unless you're Spider-Man learning your new powers under those circumstances. (laughs) It's the kind of thing that requires some advanced planning, usually. Like, I've watched uh, sometimes, like, there's these, uh, there's this great series on YouTube, uh, Corridor Digital, I think is the name Mm -hmm. of the channel. And these, these, these kind of 
sort of indie level of special effects artists who will like sort of react to special effects in various other films and talk about the craft on display. And it's mm. always really interesting. And they, it's interesting to me. Like they always know when a director is like when a director knows visual effects because that director knows how to shoot something on a small budget that gives the artists exactly what they need. When you don't have that, you have like the recent film version of Cats where for no good reason whatsoever, all the actors are not shot in any sort of like tra- like visual tracking like or mocap suits whatsoever. They're just in a skin suit just for some reason. I guess just but and the animators will be able to fix it but that's making their work so much harder and it's limiting so much of what they can do when a when a director actually knows how this stuff is being put together and they can plan for those little details of we know that we want this character to come through this space it'll look a little better if they can interact with that piece we could maybe do that in CG but we could also pos- we could probably just like an hour I bet we could rig that thing up to just like with some fishing wire and yank it, and make it fall mm. like just something, something like that and know that like that will work and that'll look invisible off camera. And that's going to look way better. Like directors who know and have a sense for this stuff can do so much more. And I think it's a, it's a skill that uh, a lot of even people maybe in the industry don't fully recognize how valuable it is. Yeah. Let's talk about the way women come across. So we've got Dolores and we've got Jessica rabbit. Sharon, would you like to furnish us with how women come across in Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, I I might be slightly biased on this one because I will be honest with this. There's a there's a kind of a triptych of women singing blues clubby type songs in red dresses around about this turn of the decade. So you've got Fabulous Jess- Baker Boys. Jessica Rabbit here, Michelle Pfeiffer and the Fabulous Baker Boys, and Amy LeCain in Crybaby. Oh, and. Uh... Valerie Galino parodying Fabulous Baker Boys in Hot Shots. Well, I'm not counting that one in this particular you group. You should, she's great. Because I didn't see that until later. <laughs> but those three performances effectively kind of, that's ground zero for my sexuality. <laughs> you were looking at the woman in the red dress. <laughs> exactly. I was definitely <laughs> looking at the woman in the red dress. But the joy of... Kathleen Turner's performance here as Jessica Rabbit is that she takes that femme fatale type and she doesn't exactly turn it on his head because she really leans into what it is. But the core of who Jessica is as a person is very different from how Jessica is drawn. Her job. Exactly. And they and, and she literally makes that distinction at one point. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Let's not pull on those uh, threads because the whole of Roger Rabbit's going to come undone if we do, by well, the way. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Who drew Jessica Rabbit? Well, yes, that's a very good question. But the what I said before about Roger can't deny the essence of who he is. Jessica has a, a kind of a a bit of a flip to that because she she does deny the essence of of who she's portraying by being totally dedicated to this weird little fluffy rabbit that makes her laugh. And even though she is sort of pulled into the story as the she's part of the setup of the the original framing in that they Maroon is trying to blackmail Marvin Acme to also sell Toontown to Cloverleaf. Cloverleaf are trying to get 
uh, Maroon's studio, but they want Toontown as well. And unless they both sell, they won't buy either of them. So again, it's all about the money. It's all about somebody wanting to, to rig this game so that they can do well financially. And Jessica is brought in to try and get dodgy pictures of herself with Acme so that he can then be blackmailed to sell Toontown. Fleur de lis, whatever you desire. Absolutely, indeed. Um, and her kind of refusal to let that taint her is really... It's, it, it's impressive. And I, I think it, it just gives her this elevation above that all she is is boobs and shoes. Mm. While at the same time really leaning into the comedic value of how ridiculously big they have made her boobs and how ridiculously small they have made her shoes. And waist. And waist, yeah. yes, absolutely. She's she's built like a Barbie doll. I love the way when she monologues to Eddie, it's very apparent that Jessica Rabbit is smart. She knows what the hell is going on. She's trying to stop people getting hurt. Absolutely, yeah. Everything she does is geared towards trying to stop more harm being done, especially to Roger. Mm. I love that you've, like she legit loves and wants to be with Roger. Like, she 100% chose him. She yeah. likes him. There was uh, the original... Uh, they were debating who was going to be the villain because they weren't going with the genie. So uh, it was either going to be Jessica, which just would have been depressing because it's like, turned out it was the cheating wife who stabbed him in the back for, like, all your kind, ye yeah. are false, which uh, completely off-brand there. And... Um, uh, the other one was Baby Herman, who we haven't talked about, and it's kind of disgusting if you think about it too much. Like The line uh, he attributes, I got a 50-year-old lust and a three-year-old doodle, is d- taken directly from the 1981 book. And you're like, oh, this guy's fun for the small amount of time he's there. But he would really grate after a while. He's Claudia. Yeah, yeah. Because if you listen to the way other people talk about how long they've been in this business, I think Benny says he's been doing this for 37 years. And he's become jaded as fuck. Exactly. Flip. Herman is likely to be around about 50. I think he's class, classed as 36 years old in the book, but he's oh, he? he's played older he's in the film. Older, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's he's got a an energy to him that's kind of... It's kind of like the pug in Men in Black. Mm. Like, that's... It's just right the amount that we got in that first film, but then they <laughs> overdo him in the later films. Yeah, yeah. But, to, yeah, to go back to how the... Um, they, they play this sort of film noir, these are, these are how the girls work. Mm. You've got Jessica mirrored by Dolores, who is Eddie's... It's, it's always a little bit question mark over what her past relationship with Eddie is, whether they were a couple or whether she was with Teddy or whether the three of them were just friends. Mm. They were definitely all in business together. They definitely all went on holiday to Catalina together. Mm. Um, but the there is hints that she says later on, I think at one point he's, he tells her she should go and find herself a nice guy and she says she's already got one. And she clearly thinks that there is something between she and Eddie that's going somewhere. Mm. But she is not a stereotypical film noir nice girl. She is also, like Jessica, smart. She is helpful and aware and gets involved in what's going on without regard for her own personal mm. safety at some point. She and Kathleen Turner also have impeccable line delivery oh, when it totally comes to do. dabbling in watercolours, Eddie, where just during the particularly compromising moment. And mm. the, um, is that a rabbit in your pocket? Are you just pleased to see me? Which just, uh, it, 
It's a combination of what happens followed by a beat and then a perfectly timed delivery on that. And they, uh, Joanne, uh, Joanna Cassidy absolutely has that, the dryness. Mm. Well, in part, what sells the idea of her and Eddie actually being a really good couple is that they both have that deadpan delivery and, and are unmoved by all the comedy of Toontown that's mm. going on around them. In contrast, we have Judge Doom, the uh, character they had to effectively make up in order to, for there to be a villain, and uh, he fits perfectly into the shoes of, uh, of the actual enemy that they've got in mind in this scenario. I think they actually went a bit too hard with Judge Doom. I think they went out of their way to scare kids and repulse them and make them deliver nightmare fuel to them. In discussing doing this show... I talked to several people who were like, I, ca- I can't remember anything about that film apart from Judge Doom bouncing around the place with those, with those eyes of his. And I'm like, they inadvertently frightened the kids as much as Eddie was frightened. Yeah, no, I, I, every time I go back to watch this film, including this time, I'm th- I keep thinking, I'm an adult now. This is going to be fine. And then like, I get back to those scenes and it is still just as unsettling and terrifying. Yeah. Even he, now. He's a very memorable cinematic villain. And I think it's mm-hmm. important that we get villains that scare the life out of us. Uh, but I also think it's it's more important that we be able to go back and, and challenge ourselves and watch the rest of the film at, later in life rather than going, well, I'm never going to see that again. It scared me a lot of when I was a kid. Like, you're missing so much otherwise, I, as I, we've already just gone through in the past hour and a half. I do think it's quite telling that when I started writing my notes, I couldn't remember for definite what the character's name was. And I thought, I think it's Doom. I'll write. I don't think it is Doom because that's way too obvious, but I'll write Doom. And then it's Doom. Mm. <laughs> One of our listeners has a partner who had never seen it. They sat down with them and said, right, so this character's going to do something really terrifying and it's just going to really, that's stuck in the heads of kids. So the first thing you see him do really is dip that toon shoe. And that was a scene, by the way, that they tried to pull back on so it wouldn't be too upsetting. Originally, that toon shoe had a mate who was going, no! from the sidelines as this shoe witnessed the other shoe get dipped. So this new viewer said, okay, so that was the really, really scary bit. And it's like, no, there's the really scary bits coming up. And then it's like climbing a mountain of fear as every subsequent action that Judge Doom perpetrates is scarier than the last. Holy smoke, he's a doom! Surprise? Not really. That lame brain freeway idea could only be cooked up by a tomb. Not just a tomb! His eyeballs pop out, and he has animated evil eyes that, when he jumps at you on springs, are nightmare fuel! Remember me, Eddie? When I killed your brother, I talked just like I think it's the voice that does it for me. The rest of it I can handle, and it's very creepy, and he's menacing. As soon as they... As soon as they pull that voice out, that voice is so combined with everything else that we have seen, having that character suddenly start speaking and that high-pitched screech yeah. is with with the eyes and everything else is so unsettling. And I'm looking up the actor. There was a, a different actor who did that high-pitched voice, Corey Burton. Ah, looking the up Corey Burton. He's a, uh, a, a legend in the voice acting community. And I'm seeing a lot of deep-voiced characters, <laughs> which is starting to like really 
surprise me even i've animated this guy hang on yeah i mean he was in uh, the most recent um uh, book of boba fett he was that gunslinger in the second to last and last episodes gosh he does handsome the wise in kingdom hearts i've animated this guy yeah no i did i did he nice. voiced a character in one of the toy story shorts i did oh that's great <laughs> but what like god that voice is terrifying Corey. <laughs> That's yeah, Corey, you didn't need to go thing. so hard, talk, Corey. <laughs> I think it was a group effort, I'm sure. I think a part of it for me is, and the, the voice is a big part of it, Dan, absolutely, but it's also when he gets monologuing about his plan, the whole, like, we've, we've had these sort of hints and subtexts about what's going on with this guy. He uh, uh, allegedly bought an election that made him a judge. They elect judges in LA in the 40s. That that confused me because a, a, a judge to me is appointed by someone professional. You don't trust the public to make decisions about that. Just ask the general public about Boaty McBoatface. Well, he's so a he, judge I'd like to have a beer with. Well, indeed. So, so he, but he seems to be actually kind of a combination of, of mayor and police commissioner or, or that's the amount of authority he seems to have in the immediate area. But he's also a business He's a stockholder for Cloverleaf. He's the only stockholder for Cloverleaf. He's the person who's been drawing together all of these threads, buying up the the red car tram so that he can shut it down, uh, attempting to purchase various large areas of land so that they can destroy it and have freeways running through it, because his ultimate ambition is to build across where Toontown is a row of gas stations, motels, retail stores to serve the freeway. My God. The town. It'll be beautiful. Exactly. And that's the thing. He won. Let me just talk about the dark subtext for a, a little while. This is when you get a little older, you learn a little history, and you examine the rotting underbelly of our culture, and you glean that the tunes in this film are treated in a fashion analogous with black and Hispanic people during this era in America. There is a tacit yet direct analogy traced between the demolition of Toontown to pave the way for new and convenient roads, and the gentrification of black neighborhoods as the occupants were moved and moved and moved again whenever it became an inconvenience that their living space was on land that powerful white people wanted. Similarly, the low pay and thankless jobs they, the tunes endured, along with being identified primarily by their being tunes and segregated from humans, they are judged by their usefulness in what they can supply to humans, not as people in their own right. I'm just drawn that way. That is her job. Roger was drawn that way. That is his job. It's almost eugenics in terms of that they are created to very specifically fulfil a certain task. Well, there's a, there's a minstrelish element to the uh, Ink and Paint Club. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was the, 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 based the, on the Harlem Club. Yeah, but it's the, the point that it's segregated. Yeah. I think somebody says it's strictly humans only yeah. in the audience. Tune review. They want to watch tunes. the entertainers being tuned, yeah. yeah. Under this light, the death of their supportive, powerful white man, Marvin Acme, is even more of a tragedy. And the, not even de the death, the murder, uh, the purposeful murder to remove that support and the eventual independence, which still has to be given to the Toons, 
is at least a step towards addressing the grotesque social imbalance that we have been watching. But Doom is positioned as being a visionary, with America's commercial expansion of the second half of the 20th century in mind. And we can look back on 40 to 75 years and counting of what freeways and gas stations and fast food restaurants at the expense of communities and human connection have wrought giving this movie more scope and tragedy as every year elapses. In this version of America Eddie resides in, everyone rides the red car together. In Judge Doom's wildest dreams, we are all separated into our own personal wheeled cubicles, worshipping the system that sets us apart. Bumper to bumper and not moving. Yeah. That, that line about uh, it'll, uh, traffic jams, traffic jams will, be will be a thing a... of the past. <laughs> yeah, that just that always elicits a hollow <laughs> laugh on purpose. They they don't go ridiculously out of their way. They're not especially preachy with it as a uh, a comparison, but it's there, and uh, the tunes are absolutely shown in a sympathetic light. The question mark being over the fact that Judge Doom is in fact a tune. So you'd be looking at somehow a black industrialist masquerading in whiteface in 1947 and buying up freeways to bulldoze black neighborhoods. Okay. Yeah, it kind of falls down. It does fall down because Judge Doom is a tune. I, did, I so, only recently noticed at this time, I feel like they artificially whitened Christopher Lloyd's teeth in yeah, this. Yeah, To make teeth. him feel like a little bit more sort of uncanny but in a tune like that's an uncannily like white bright paint teeth sort of look that a cartoon would sort of have just a little bit hidden underneath the face mask yeah there, there a little are too square clues yeah. dotted throughout that he is not who he appears to be when he first uses the dip he has to wear these big elbow length mm. rubber gloves mm. yet we see on several occasions that turpentine and dip don't really hurt humans all that much mm. and when the the canister of it gets spilled in the bar he backs up so fast yeah to make yep. sure that his feet don't go into it yeah and he, he gets a really great gruesome death as well. That's another thing that would have stuck with kids. Like he gets steamrolled, and then he gets the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm melting scene, which is again, it's it's gruesome, and I think it's even more unsettling if you look at that. What he's saying doesn't quite match up with his lips, and that that happens quite a bit with uh, the the ADR on this was. Uh, I'm assuming to make sure that the timing was right in in certain scenes. He is a weird disembodied Voldemort of a character. Sorry to invoke that. That particular book series but uh it's it, the, the screechy high-pitched voice and the just absolute malevolence of him and like i said i think they went just a smidgen too hard on it because he he's a very strong flavor and if it makes you forget other brilliant moments of uh who framed roger rabbit then it's maybe too strong the horror spice was overpowering i think i agree it would it would have been just as effective dialed back 10 percent, and maybe not been the one thing that kids remember. What <laughs> could have possibly happened to you to turn you into such a sourpuss? You want to know? I'll tell you. A tune killed my brother. A tune? No. That's right. A tune. We were investigating a robbery at the First National Bank of Toontown. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working in Toontown. Thought it was a lot of laughs. Anyway. This guy got away with a zillion simoleons. <laughs> we 
trailed into a little dive down on Yaxa Street. Went in. Only he got the drop on us. Literally. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Said he never made it. I never did find out who that guy was. All I remember was him standing over me laughing with those burning red eyes and that high squeaky voice. He disappeared into Toontown after that. <laughs> no wonder you hate me. If I don't kill my brother, I'd hate me too. <laughs> Come on, don't cry. I don't hate you. Yes, you do. No, I don't. You do hate me. Otherwise, you wouldn't yank my ears all those times. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the times you yanked my ears? All the times I yanked your ears. Apology accepted. It is worth pointing out that the black neighborhoods in this era were referred to as Coontown. Nothing about this is subtle. So to finish off, we've got a series of highlights, and bearing in mind we literally cannot name-check every moment. So, folks, do not write in and say, I cannot believe you didn't talk that much about Benny. <laughs> what are our, our favourite little details found throughout the film that we haven't yet mentioned? Uh, Dan, I'm assuming you've got a couple. For me, it, like, even more than there being any specific character, it's, it's sort of a little bit more behind-the-scenes aspects. The mm-hmm. fact that, one, that... One, that almost all of the cartoon character cameos are period appropriate, Mm -hmm. almost for the most part, like mostly they're 50s and before, which I quite like, even to the point that they're using 50s era designs for current characters, Uh, like uh, the Mickey Mouse and the uh, Bugs Bunny are both the 50s era design and like which leads to this great behind the scenes detail thing that I found that I love where apparently at some point there were some Warner Brothers executives who were demanding that they use the more recent Daffy Duck design, the Chuck Jones Daffy Duck, instead of the more period appropriate one. And Zemeckis did just the most Mel Brooks thing and said, okay, and paid some other animators to animate the version, like a version with that Daffy Duck and then just used the original one anyway. <laughs> he, he did the Mel Brooks, like, tell them, like, yeah, sure, you got it, and then just not do what they said. <laughs> Similarly, there were stipulations between Disney and Warner Brothers that when Daffy Duck and Donald Duck play pianos, they must be equally as good as each other. <laughs> and when Bugs and Mickey are falling, they are friends, neither one gets the upper hand. And it's like this weird kind of, we'll sign off to be in this, but they're like n- neither one of them is coming off the better if there's going to be a like Daffy versus Donald is a freaking amazing dueling pianos moment and it's, it's again it's a once off you don't see that anywhere else yeah and you probably won't ever again it's an amazing thing and mm. and like the voice st- aspect too the fact that this is like one of the last times Mel Blanc is doing a lot of these Looney yeah. Tunes characters the fact that uh, Betty Boop's voice is the original actor that she was very like quite old at this point yeah she was in national lampoon's uh christmas vacation she was like, uh like the next year at the end yeah may questel yeah and she, but she's still uh playing betty but like little details like that make mm. me very happy Beautifully, yeah. The, uh, that, I feel like putting Betty Boop there was to stop parents getting quite so outraged the moment that super sexy Jessica came out. Just to say, look, cartoons were sexy back then, okay? Do you remember Betty Boop? Okay, well, we've got the new version. 
in, in a kind of a a, 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 a teaser. I don't know. It's, I, I love that she makes Betty Boop not resentful because it would be so easy to go down a, a road of, you know, like dejected tunes where they're like they're angry because everything's all about color now and and they're black and white and the. It would have been easy to make this cynical on behalf of the tunes, as opposed to cynical on behalf of the humans. Mm. The tunes seem to have things right. They're at least within the restrictions the humans afford them, living their best lives. Yeah, you're kind of describing Cool World there. Yeah. Cynical tunes. Cynical tunes. <laughs> I would say, uh, just because it's timely and appropriate, that the the scene with Betty Boop is. One of my favourite Oh, bits. it's a panic. That, that interaction between Eddie mm. and Betty, I think, is absolutely adorable. But also the uh, the, the script moments of, of jokes and gags that get set up and paid off. For the most part, there's quite a gap between them. This one's quite a narrow one, but it's the, give me a scotch on the rocks. And, and I mean ice. ice. And again, and they, like, they are constrained. They can't not make that gag, even if he's already predicted absolutely. it. Absolutely. He's been here before. He knows how this works. And yes, they bring him rocks. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, there's, there's some things which you wouldn't automatically feel like, wow, that was amazing. When he starts off in R.K. Maroon's office and they meet Dumbo, Dumbo is behind those Venetian blinds. And those blinds keep coming into play throughout the film. Roger interacts with them when he's freaking out and cake, patter cake, and they're being pummeled by cartoon fists. And then later on, they, they feature very heavily during the shooting of R.K. Maroon in the back. Which, by the way, those bloody squibs that burst out of his back, you couldn't do that in a PG today. You couldn't do it in a PG-13. It's pretty brutal at times. Also, they neatly set up Chekhov's gun with a poster for Pistol Packin' Possum on the wall. So even if you don't see it directly, your brain starts thinking about guns and getting more tense. Uh, but yeah, the Venetian blinds, you have to remember that Dumbo was being drawn piecemeal, like behind the blinds, one frame at a time, rather than that they were able to overlay the blinds. It was very complicated work to make it feel like he was there. But because he's behind them and there is that separation, that is, again, an interaction between the physical world that we know and this tune, who would have been so much easier just to pop straight through and... Like, just be like a sticker that you lay on the scene. But that's the thing. You, the, the, the way it was done, they were animating onto the film, yeah. not layering the film over animation. Yeah. The weasels. The oh. weasels in general. I, <laughs> whenever our house is messy, I murmur to Sharon, uh, so, Baz, you want us to disresemble the place? Like, I just... They have just the right amount of, of being threatening and being funny. And that whole, like, the setup of, of there being like hyenas. Like, they, they, they go into paroxysms of overwhelming laughter that they can't get out of, almost like Joker toxin. So that gives us the Chekhov's laugh. So when Eddie finally gets to use his abilities, it's like, ah, one of these days you're going to die laughing. That's what he was uh, Which they exploiting. do with the power of three. The head weasel tells the others, yeah. you, one of these days you're going to die laughing then the judge says it to them later on and points you know out, what happens if you can't stop laughing one of them has already what does he say your cousin remember what happened to your cousin or yeah. something like that and, there and was, then Eddie uses it there were originally going to be seven of these weasels and they were going to be the flip side of the seven dwarves so uh, angry rather than happy okay wise guy where's the rabbit I'm seen it what's in there my lingerie <laughs> 
the lovely touches there is that they don't use toon weapons. They're pointing human guns at Eddie and getting out a human flick knife stiletto uh, so that it just just so that they've got that little extra layer of threat, and those are done with puppeteering prop guns around the place and then cartooning in a weasel around that. But it just it adds that extra subtext so that when Eddie then goes to Toontown and brings out his cartoon gun, you go, ah, so this is like the flip side of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's an internal logic to how the world works. Like, if tunes want to actually threaten a human in the real world, you got You can't do it with tuned weapons. You got to yeah. actually got to bring something physical, and it's vice versa. Like, a real weapon would do nothing to a tune, and I don't even know if a cartoon gun would do much to a tune either. Now that I think about it, but it's mm. probably more. You can't <laughs> hurt. You'd probably so put a work. hole through the tune, but they'd get better. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a moment which I, I can't quite decide is uh, uh, positive or negative. I think it's actually a mixture of both. When Eddie decides to finally give up on the drink, he gets his cartoon gun out with the comedy Wild West bullets and fires uh, uh, several into the air, one of which is a Native American bullet that then uses the tomahawk to smash the liquor bottle, which if you consider what a curse upon the Native American nation's liquor was by the white man, it's kind of a positive, but it's uncomfortable nonetheless. And also the fact that he's like he's acting like a stereotypical racist cartoon version of a Native American, yet he's positioned as a hero. It's, it's goods and bads and ups and downs all in one go and, and probably sort of lands on the side of right, but in a kind of, a, is there any other way you could have done this? I think you just described Robert Zemeckis' career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of what makes me happier that the subtext of the actual history of L.A. and the uh, gentrification that happened there and the displacing of like poor and minority families who, who lived in these areas so that freeways could exist. Like all of that history is real and that it that history is kind of used and there is a subtext that is there. But I'm glad that the metaphor is not drawn more directly because mm. I really do not trust <laughs> that they that it would be it's already iffy in a lot of places as is and a little bit like yeah. I, I still if, don't know exactly how I feel about it I think if they'd actually been trying 
to put a finer point on it, it would have gone way worse. If you make it one-to-one, the metaphor will carry you to a certain point, but then go down alleys that you didn't really intend, like Judge Doom being a tune. This is one of the reasons I did not like the Luke Cage Netflix series. The main villain in that was a black gangster, with barely any allusions to oppression that might come from somewhere else. I think the, yeah. that they use very broad class-based strokes of bad guy rich and powerful versus literally everyone else. Yeah. Uh, there's a, I think my favourite shot in the entire film was done very, very simply. And that's, again, the RK Maroon office. There's, some, there's loads of good stuff around this point. Uh, where, when uh, he gets shot... It's just after Rob Roger's been bashed on the head by a frying pan uh, by Jessica. She puts him in the trunk of the car and the camera sort of pans up and you can see Jessica and the window behind her. And then she goes out of focus as it uh, as the window becomes clearer so that you're led to understand the events that we're about to see take place within this office. But Jessica shouldn't have gone blurry because as the camera pulled in, the cartoon remains the same. So making her go blurry makes it feel more like there was actually, well, there was a camera there, but that she was there at the time being affected by the focus pull. That must have been a Dean Cundy note or something because it's beautiful the way that that's pulled across. And yeah, they, yeah. they did it just by smearing and adding a, like a little filter to a certain part of the uh, shot just to slowly make that uh, her more blurry. Yeah, just little details like that to try to make the anything to try to make the tunes feel like they are belonging on the set just along with the human actors even to the point of trying to figure out how to make them seem out of focus when the when the camera focus pulls to a different point in the shot just those little details are what make it work the whole section where uh, eddie goes up in the uh, building to try to look for what he thinks is uh jessica and then encounters lena hyena that <laughs> thinks of Jessica, and then encounters Lena Hyena, who is kind of like an even worse version of Pepe Le Pew, who I'm very glad they got rid of really quickly as an idea. The, the, the whole sequence of going up, sir, just the whole droopy elevator thing, and the fact that Eddie's like, oh, I've now got to play by tune rules. Now let's see if I remember how this works. It's joyful. And then the f- Mel Blanc voicing Tweety Pie for one of the last times, the presence of of Bugs and Mickey in just the right time, the gag about the spare, all that whole sequence is wonderful. And like all the best movies, you can watch them for years and still find new things. I noticed for the first time watching it today that um, when Eddie is falls off after Tweety lets his last piggy go, the buildings have been looking up at him and their eyeline follows him down as he starts to plummet. It's a fantastic tiny little detail like which you wouldn't notice. Yeah. Yeah, he chose down. <laughs> but the the I think when he enters Toontown for the first time, you kind of there's his reminder of how this is going to go down. There is a, a crashed truck that says Acme's overused gags, <laughs> and, and the the jokes are all kind of spilling out onto the road. It's like this is how Toontown works. If an overused gag starts to play itself out, lean into it because it's going to happen. Yeah. Going up, sir. <laughs> Mind the steps, sir. Hold on, sir. Your floor, sir. 
Have a good day, sir. Gotcha. It's actually, it's very well measured in terms of how long they spend in two-town, i.e. not much. Not much, yeah. It's total chaos. And the, like I said, the tombs are living their best lives and nothing can really hurt them. But if you're a human, it does actually seem like it might be really dangerous to be there. Good Which, order. again, if you're going to read all those metaphors, is troublesome. But uh, Just to go back to Benny briefly, though, I realised for the first time that Benny is a New York cab. Yeah. <laughs> so he's talking about a, a Brooklyn sports team. Yeah, he's he's way out of his... Yeah, he's gone. He's made the very long journey, and uh, again, the Benny's um, "this lever stupid" sign is one of my favourite little visual gags in the uh, the movie. Well, d- did you notice those cops who are r- driving towards them on the bike? Uh, they're like wearing leather daddy outfits. There was something about eighties and nineties films where they made cops look not at all like cops and more like strippers, strippers, hot cops. <laughs> <laughs> It's strange, but uh, but yeah, appropriate, I suppose, for this era. And there's just so many details to pull to. You have to frame by frame for a lot of these, especially the Toontown stuff, but a yeah. lot of these shots that have tunes in them because there are so many and just little things happening in the background that it's it's too much to take in at once. Yeah. Uh, the nice booby trap moment. Always one of my favorite gags. <laughs> So it's small, it's simple, but it, it, it says quite a lot about Jessica's character. It also says, again, it's the, the obvious gag, mm. but um, yeah, that's amusing. Uh, but also, and this is a very small thing, I noticed that while Doom is being way too scary, if you look around the warehouse, it's, they've, they've stored certain things there, including big scary heads, and there are scary monster shadows thrown up on the wall, which are enough to give you, this is a bad place, but it's not going to be too bad for the kids and for the parents. Like, there'll be some peril, but they're probably going to get through this. Like, if you took those away and made it too realistic as a warehouse, uh, it might actually get even scarier. Mm. Manageable peril. Yeah, manageable peril is a good way of putting it. And then, of course, when when Eddie finally comes around to actually being able to deal with this, he has to go back to the clown. I love the fact that it's heartwarming to see him kind of get the spirit of who he was before back 
and using it effectively as a weapon in order to uh, uh, outmatch and, and outcunning the weasels. It's, it's, it's effectively his tune roots, or, or at least that tunes are so rooted in vaudeville and that kind of physical performance that that's the point where they join. I love that he's physically doing a, a stellar job of that sort of performance and mm. that sort of uh, clowning around while his face is still very kind of stoic him. Yeah. <laughs> throughout. It's, it's a great, like, he stays in his character as himself while doing it. And it's really entertaining to watch. It's It surprises me every time how good he actually ends up, uh, Hoskins ends up being, like, presenting that stuff. Yeah. Negotiations had to happen once all of the tunes... For a start, that wall that got knocked down as the dip cannon drives through to Toontown, which, by the way, was going off to commit genocide, just so we understand that. It was going to wipe tunes off the LA map. Jesus. Well, it had run out, hadn't it? No, no, it wasn't then. It had been deactivated. But Doom's plan plan was send it through this brick wall. Yeah. Was it? I, I... Assume it must have been, and or, or just go through the tunnel. Yes, yeah. round the corner okay. and melt Toontown and melt Toontown and all the tunes in it. Mm-hmm. And no one will. It's it's this better to ask forgiveness than seek permission. Well, that's the thing. Once scenario. he's done it, you can't. That can't be undone. Yeah, you can't redraw Toontown. I mean, you could. But uh, again, we got to ask. But then we got to start wondering who yeah. did the drawing. It's, the it's a Pixar scenario of let's not think too deeply about what is going on with these toys. Yeah. <laughs> At what point does the paint become sentient? Dog, because that way lies Forky. Yes, I and know. existential nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, yeah, basically they had to negotiate with Katzenberg for how many characters they could have in this big ensemble at the end. And they didn't even have the bit where he kisses Roger. Again, that was a reshoot. And then they realized, oh, wait, that's the signifier that he's actually turned a corner. And the description of the, uh, the the events of the film in Wikipedia says, and Eddie and Dolores walk off with Roger and Jessica happily into Toontown, since fear has now been defeated. Effectively, while it's very convenient that Judge Doom killed his brother, it's also the big hump he had to get over in terms of confronting the thing that, that paralyzed him with fear in the past and Absolutely. led to great untenable loss yeah and roger's earlier mention of everybody in toontown knows that if you have if you need help you go to valiant Valiant and valiant Valiant. so their name hasn't been tarnished exactly and at this point although the toons have got acme's will (coughs) there is presumably still going to be an awful lot of paperwork that they're going to have to go through in order to legally have this set up for them they're going to need somebody to help them with that and it's going to need to be somebody who knows how to interact with humans and since dolores has apparently lost her job as well it would appear that that's their new role now. They're going to go and be detectives and, and administrators in Toontown. And then the the final uh, note of the film was originally just Porky Pig saying, that's all, folks. And then uh, I think Eisner was like, no, no, we can't just give this to Warner Brothers. So actually, it's almost like trying to have the last word. Tinkerbell is the last and then we're going to go. Disney won. Disney closed it down, just so that we know. Just so that that's been established. Buena Vista distributed it. Disney, you won. You got that. Disney got the merchandising rights, while Warner Brothers took a large amount from the the box office. I have a question, actually. Sure. Uh, What is your favourite Acme gag? The disappearing, reappearing ink, even though it's a plot-holding gag, is actually really neat. I love that idea. I feel like uh, his 
the blue patch, I don't I never noticed exactly when the blue patch appears on his shirt, but if it appeared during the fight with Judge Doom and you're not actually drawn to it, but it's there, that would be a neat little visual tip-off of wait a second, reappearing ink? That was where he got squirted by Marvin Acme. Which, by the way, Mickey Rooney was a big child star from this era. So it actually makes perfect, beautiful casting sense for him to be Marvin Acme, even though he is the kind of guy that I'd be like, oh, you're exhausting if I met him in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Although if the uh, he applies the ink to Eddie in the club and then Eddie's ink reappears literally moments before the will mm. starts to reappear itself. That and suggests that he wrote he his wrote will, the will on a napkin. In the dressing room mm. while he was talking to Jessica. <laughs> Yikes. So um, it, she would have had to witness it. And yet she says he gave her this paper and when she opened the envelope, it, it, was, was, blank. it was blank. Yeah. So she doesn't know what was in it. It's not like Robert Zemeckis to have a plot hole that well, you could drive no. a truck through <laughs> in his movie. <laughs> but yeah, the, the wall that the thing goes through had to be handmade with bricks that were not mortared together. And they had to do multiple takes and rebuild it each time to make it look perfect so that it could then be crushed down. I, mean, I was like, I think it took three weeks to film that shot. And I'm like... That's second unit stuff. Give that to the second unit. Presumably the second unit were building the wall in the first place. (laughs) Build it, then knock it down. Absolutely. What about you, Dan? Have you got a favourite Acme gag? Like, most Acme gags are the kind of gags that would, like, annoy me more. I I love the presentation of this Acme character. He is lovable, even though every gag he's doing is the most annoying thing. (laughs) He's like a good-natured joker. Yeah, he's like the he's the great uncle or grandpa that the grandkids love hanging out with because he's a complete goofball. Mm. But if he's in if he was in that mode twenty four seven, I would never ever want to spend time in the same room with this person. Yeah, as soon as the grandkids re- reach their twenties, they're like, ah, oh, put the hand buzzer away, please. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one element that I really liked uh, was the fact that the in in Toontown, Acme is like Amway. They make everything. There's in the opening. It's Confederated Products. <laughs> Sorry, continue. In the opening uh, short, I was noticing this time how many of the things in that little cartoon mm. are Acme made, and uh, th- th- these are just the ones I caught. I'm sure there are others. The soap, the chili sauce, the toaster, that the the. the um, Oh, yeah, they are supplying Plunger all electronics and of. ingredients. And the Succolux vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Who could get by without a Succolux? Well, absolutely. Uh, but I think it's the portable holes are, are my favourite. Like yes, oh, they, I've got a hole in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat, yeah. I guess in canon, Acme is sort of a arms producer, <laughs> like a weapons manufacturer. Because like, in canon, they're... Like it's what Wiley e. Coyote is buying weaponry from, tr- like weird weaponry from, yeah. to try to take out a Roadrunner. One assumes, ironically, that the cannon that uh, uh, Donald bought in canon to his dueling piano scenario was in an fact Acme an Acme cannon. one. And it's almost surprising that he didn't shoot Wiley e. Coyote out of it. <laughs> Oh, well, actually, now that I think about it, I think Wiley e. Coyote was absent. He must be a later character, like no Roadrunner either. He's Warner Brothers, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. I like to think because that was like actually a real physical. Was that a real physical cannon or was that a cartoon cannon in the shot? Uh, it was a cartoon cannon. I thought you were going to say was that a real physical coyote? No, they didn't. <laughs> I keep you were say that. Dropping this poor coyote off a cliff. 
Uh, they, yeah, they went through a lot of coyotes back, back in the days before he had to actually. <laughs> no, no, I think it, I think it was a, uh, a a cartoon cannon he hid inside his piano. Yeah, first maybe in, in 1949, which was two years after. Nice. That this is set. So they're not they they didn't go with the anachronism there, but Porky Pig was around. Maybe the maybe in Toontown, like in Toon World, it's actual weapons in real life. Like Acme is producing goof like goofball things like hand buzzers and disappearing ink i never this never happened that i know of in the show but they could have made tiny tunes in continuity with who framed roger rabbit because spielberg was behind it so you know just make it that this happened in 1947 that would have been i guess warner brothers probably doesn't own a lot of the stuff yeah i suppose so they wouldn't be able to sort of reference the fact that mickey mouse is in it but uh yeah they could have made an allusion to it it seems in the same sort of ballpark also just the whole idea of it being generational and now we've got bugs bunnies kids i don't know checking the wiki babs and buster are both no relation to each other nor to bugs bunny but symbolically yeah so, I mean, uh, that that's pretty much it for as much as I can tell about um, Roger Rabbit. Is there anything else left to say about its impact or, uh, or or just a detail about it that you particularly liked? I think we covered largely a lot of the film. I guess one additional thing that I think is worth sort of mentioning as a bit of side trivia is mm-hmm. about Richard Williams himself. Oh, yeah. Character that he is. He uh, is also the guy who wrote, he ended up writing a book about animation called mm-hmm. The Animator's Survival Kit, which is basically the book people are told to get if they want to learn animation. He basically has indirectly taught most everybody who is an animator now. Nice. Yeah. That's a hell of a legacy. It really is. Like, he'll be remembered for a lot of his films, but the impact he had, I think, is going to end up really being that book. Yeah. I mean, this was his crowning glory. I think uh, we we said when we uh, covered The Thief and the Cobbler that what he needed was somebody professional to say, we need it done by this point. And again, like, true to form, he hadn't designed Roger until fairly late in production. He wasn't a fan of storyboards or nailing down characters or scripts or establishing structure. But he did. He was very good at, at drawing things, and he made uh, Roger look like a dunce cap originally. This this giant white triangle. He needed that Spielberg behind him saying, "We're going to need to have this done by this month." And again, I think it's amazing that they, he actually managed to get that done. And I feel sad that that couldn't happen with him with the Thief and the Cobbler. That it ended up so horrendously compromised on its final theatrical release, such as it was. I think it was released in like countries in two cinemas it was tiny and 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 sad and i think miramax ended up owning it which is again tragic but yeah as you say that he is uh, acclaimed and beloved and a uh, seen as a wise figure despite being clearly kind of mad as a as a guy uh, in animation circles he is he will always be respected for his art over commerce And that seems like the most apropos time to remind you folks at home that artists need to eat as well. We can't just wander the countryside eating berries. And whatever cartoon rabbits are foolish enough to fall prey to our many snares. I don't even know where I'm going with this. Either way, the thing that keeps our art in business is you folks at home supporting us via Patreon. As always, a massive thank you to everyone who pitches in every month. It fuels us in many different ways. And a special big shout-out to our $15 sponsors who get name-checked every episode. That would be Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, 
Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salgueiro, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tima Helaz-Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Our show on The Batman is still on the way, but next week we have an emergency session talking all about Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. And I'll tell you right now, you don't need to see this movie. There's barely anything to spoil. But I have some things to say. Dan, we hope to get you back on soon to talk about, among other things, Disney's Encanto, the film after that, Strange World, and if we're very lucky, Dan will tell us all why he likes a goofy movie so much. Been kind of talking about that for a while. (laughs) Now, before we go, what episode of New Frame Plus would you like to point people towards that you've done in in the past year or so? Mm, What what would be most sort of relevant to what we're talking about now? I've got Uh, three listed as potentials. Um, Ooh, actually, I'm curious to hear your like. I'll pitch. I've started making a series just sort of on the history of the uh, the retrospective history of animation in the Final Fantasy franchise and kind of how that technologically and aesthetically kind of like grows and develops with each game just because I think it's kind of an interesting lens to look at the history of game animation through. Uh, But I'm interested to hear your uh, suggestions. It's going to be fascinating seeing Final Fantasy develop because you're absolutely right. It starts to just go uh, up and up in terms of what the... like. It starts out as one of the most basic game series you could imagine. And by the time you get to like 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, (laughs) this is going to take you a while, as you know. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with that. So honestly, yeah, I, I'd say definitely start with that series, folks, as well. Like, uh, have, have a look into that, because uh, one and two are out at this at the time of recording. Uh, but you did following through and overlapping actions. Mm-hmm. What's, what does that entail for, in terms of animation? Yeah, so that, so like that's a that's a part of a another little series that I've been slowly putting out on the different principles of animation. Follow through and overlapping action are one of the twelve uh, principles of animation established by the uh, sort of the nine old men of uh, Disney back in the day. And that one in particular is about uh, the way that individual. It's kind of a complicated one to explain because it's kind of two principles that they sort of sandwich together under one. It's about the way you sort of show realistic weight and physicality by having characters not start moving and stop moving all at once like a different in the case of roger rabbit his ears if he comes to a sudden stop his ears shouldn't just instantly hit that standing idle pose Mm. like they've got weight to them if he if his head stops his ears should sort of flat forward and then sort of like swing back and sort of correct and they should sort of move in a sort of a noodly fashion where the base of the ears moves first and the tip of the ears sort of follows uh as they sort of settle uh, so that's kind of what the general principle of follow-through and overlapping action is. So you will see a lot of that principle in play in this style of animation in uh, Roger Rabbit. That's that's why I chose that one for my first choice. I, I figured <laughs> that it's uh, gravity, inertia, and momentum all take effect on things that should not be affected by them because they are splashes of paint that are lying on a cell rather than actually 
like each individual frame is static and solid but yeah there's that fluidity to them which again i think comes down to the the ballet dancer arms for his ears being that like they have to have a certain lifelike rather than like tv aerial rabbit ears just sticking up at jagged angles and not really being part of him as more more like a solid hat that he would wear yeah. Um, the other one that I uh, noted down was slow in and slow out. Yeah. What does that entail? Another one of the uh, 12 principles. This is one that is sort of a, sim- a similar uh, principle to deal with handling the weight of objects, mm-hmm. where uh, an object, especially an organic object or character, can't come to a stop or start moving all at once unless there is some other force sort of uh, acting on them. It's sort of like representing physics realistically in animation. A character who is heavy, if they try to come to a stop, are going to have to decelerate. And if they're going to try to get up to speed, they're going to have to accelerate as well. So the amount of that that you show and the way that you show that in animation can convey a lot about the weight and physicality of the character or object or whatever it is. So yeah, that's another good one for sort of uh, that whole principles of animation animation series there's only five of the videos in a series so far but uh they will all kind of cover basic principles through the lens of games and the videos themselves but they are all principles that were originally established with hand-drawn animation okay uh, that's a yeah then go for those ones uh, as, as your first protocol if you folks have not yet seen new frame plus and the third one that i'd suggest purely because you put so much gosh darned effort into it <laughs> and you know what i'm gonna say don't you i do <laughs> sonic the hedgehog <laughs> Yeah, you put more into that than they put into the film. (laughs) I made a feature-length film, basically, about the history of animation in Sonic games, and it was fun but exhausting to make. (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's a that's a real like appointment watch. Like that is a good Sunday morning thing to sit down with and and just really take you through it. That's kind of why I'm excited about what you're going to discover about Final Fantasy. I'm glad that you are separating it out because trying to get that all into one thing would have would have been very difficult yeah no, that i was uh the sonic video was a good lesson for how to handle these things a little yeah. bit more reasonably in the future well you've got your uh, homework orders folks and we will see you all next week i've been alex shaw i've been sharon shaw and that's all folks it couldn't end any other way i guess yeah dan you get to be tinkerbell in the
Some 